Welcome to Crushing History, a narrative history podcast. First Saga, Rome's Riddle Shield, Episode 1, Goths at Portas. If your country was waging war, and that you were to fight in a decisive battle like Stalingrad or Verdun, or the Battle of Britain, would you know it? Would you know that the fate of your homeland, maybe of your culture and way of life, depends on the issue of this battle? Of course you would be told that this battle is critical, but thrown in the tumultuous flow of events, would you be able to discern what is what? Take Stalingrad, for instance, often considered one of the biggest turning points in World War II. But was it really this decisive? Say the Germans were able to fully conquer the city. Does it change the course of the war for real? Was not the war in the East already lost once Barbarossa failed to force the USSR to surrender in 1941? Was there any chance for Germany to ever win a war against an opponent willing to lose over 25 million men, women and children? Even today, with all the knowledge available to us about this battle in World War II, we might be mistaken in our assessment of the decisiveness of this confrontation. So what would you know if you were living the events with limited information and biased by your own involvement in the struggle? Take the French, for instance. It never ceases to amaze me how many Frenchmen genuinely thought, after the defeat in 1940, that this was just the dawn of a new era, where France would still have some kind of place on the world stage. And I'm not talking about the average Frenchman, no, I'm referring to the elite, intellectuals, top politicians, army generals, writers, who really thought France had a real future in Nazi Germany. I mean, it was conquered in a month. Half of it was occupied by a country whose regime was one of the most vicious dictatorships in the world, whose leader had openly published his geopolitical goals, 
repeatedly broke his promises in order to fulfill his objectives. The economy was in shambles, and they had to pay a heavy tribute to the occupier. But they still somehow believed that should Germany prevail, Hitler would tolerate the existence of France and not reduce it to some kind of colony. On the other hand, most of the people who thought like that also considered that the real enemy was the USSR and the spread of communism. And France also retained most of its colonial empire. It was far from being the first time that the country was experiencing foreign occupation. It had been occupied after Napoleon's defeat in 1815, and also after the Franco-Prussian War in 1871. So I guess it also depends on what you decide to focus your attention on. But this makes the question all the more fascinating. If your country or your civilization was collapsing, would you really know? Would you really notice? And if so, would you know it in time? Would you be able to stop it? Today we are going to talk about a collapse that took almost a century to complete. A collapse that has been studied and debated over and over again without a definitive answer, and that will still be the subject of a great many controversies in the future. Our journey starts in 468 AD, off the coast of modern-day Tunisia. The sun is slowly setting down on one of the biggest fleet ever assembled in human history, to be part of one of the biggest amphibious operations of antiquity. One of our sources, Sedrenius, mentions a fleet of about 1,113 ships. 1,113 ships. Just as a comparison, for Overlord, the Allies gathered about 7,000 ships. But we were in 1944, and it took the British Empire and the rising United States and all the support of industrial economists to bring all those ships together. In 468 AD, though, there is no industrial economy, there is no world economy or worldwide colonial empire. So to muster such a force was a big feat and tells you all the more about the stakes. The Eastern and Western Roman empires pulled their resources together to attack North Africa which was formerly part of the empire, it was now under the control of the Vandals, a Germanic people who had crossed the whole world to get there. Vandals. Think about how this word sounds today, and it will give you an idea of what kind of people these men were to the Romans. The mark on history has been such that the name is now synonym with degradation, destruction, in English, in French, in Spanish. And yet again, here they were, occupying the breadbasket of the empire. Yes, that's right. Back then Tunisia was enormously rich. It was the richest province of the Western Empire and therefore was its main source of income. How could it be lost to the barbarians? Tunisia was on the fringe of the empire, but it was a barcode. There was no real threat on this frontier. The invaders came from Germania, from the other side of the empire, in a way, almost from the other side of the world. How could Roma fall in so low? as to allow barbarians to get that far into Roman territory. Now with this huge expedition, the Romans intended to reclaim the territories as theirs, because they knew that the fate of the empire depended upon its ability to raise armies, and the loss of North Africa had been a huge blow to the tax incomes of the state. Without those resources, the Romans would not be able to stop the fire, which had spread across the Western Empire for the last 60 years. Because... In 468 AD, Tunisia was not the only territory lost to the empire. 
Augustus, the first emperor, the founding father of the empire, created roughly around 30 BC, would have recognized his empire in 395 AD. It was a little bit bigger than the one he had left to his heir. England had been conquered some decades after his death. But the empire which engulfed the whole Mediterranean Sea and the territories bordering it was more or less similar in 395 AD to the one Augustus had known in 14 AD upon his death. But let's make him travel through time a mere 40 years later, and he would cry with bulging eyes. Okay, so show me the map. What, what, the, what the hell? What have you done? By all the gods, what have you done to my empire? In half a century, the West had lost Britannia, most of Gaul, Hispania, and North Africa. The eastern part of the empire was intact and prosperous, but the West was in smithereens. And that's why it is so intriguing. How can such a superpower end up being defeated so blatantly after centuries of undisputed hegemony? In that time, there was another empire, the Sassanid Empire, on the eastern frontier. And you could expect Rome to fail against another superstructure, but it did not. Instead, it crumbled to the ground while facing barbarians in the west. Of course, some historians will tell you that with the end of the Western Roman Empire, we are dealing with a transformation rather than with a collapse, and there is some truth in it, and you can argue that this part of the world is experiencing a lot of changes, but that in some way it remains the same, it's still mainly Christian, for instance. So yes, you cannot compare this collapse to the destruction of the Aztec Empire by the Europeans, or any other Native American people for that matter, whose culture and way of life has been almost entirely wiped out. But you do not gear up for 1,113 ships amphibious expedition because you are experiencing some transformation. You do so because you are facing an existential threat, and you can twist it any way you want. In 395 AD, you have one Christian empire under one wall from Edwin's Wall in England to the Euphrates in Iraq, and a little more than 40 years later, half of it is gone. Gone. We're facing a real collapse. You might argue that it's not a total collapse, but it's not a simple transformation either. And just like with the rest of Roman history, the collapse of the West is a fascinating story. Because it talks to us. It's not an underdog which is going down. It's the most powerful, advanced and developed state of this part of the world. And it's not failing because it's being attacked by some aliens with a cutting-edge technology which grants them such an advantage that you just cannot compete with them. Like in the case of the modern era European invasions around the world. No. The foe is quite a fair match. They have pretty much the same weaponry. They've known them quite well. They have been in contact with them for centuries. And it talks to us because the Romans are quite like us. If history was a magic mirror, the Romans would be our twisted reflection. Somehow different and somehow similar. They are forebears. Their history and their fall echo through time. We inherited a great deal from Roman Greece. They were the cradle of Western civilization. They passed on a complete and complex legal system. Christianity, roads, buildings, literature, philosophy, history, a calendar, and the achievements were impressive indeed. But on top of the inheritance aspect of it, it is rather hard for Western civilization not to draw parallels. Think about it. Here's Rome originally, a tiny city in the middle of modern-day Italy, a speck on the map. And now, that's Rome at its peak, 
an empire stretching on three continents for over half a millennium. Do you get it? That's right. There were big successful badasses who basically took over, conquered, raped, plundered, sacked, and enslaved the whole known world. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Check this out. This is Europe originally. It's not a speck on the map like Rome, but compared to the rest of the world, it's pretty small. And this is Europe after making sure no one on Earth misses a class on how to get civilized. But there's more. Because here's the best part with the Romans. According to the narrative, all these wars that they waged, well, they started almost none of them. That's right, they were just defending themselves. See, they weren't the bad guys, it was self-defense. Of course, they would poke their future aggressors once or twice in the eyes before things would go out of control. But you can't blame them for having neighbors unable to stand a drug here and there. And sometimes also they were really bad at reading maps, you know, kind of... Oh, sorry, we thought that according to the treaty this was our spot. Well, I guess that now that we're here, you're just gonna have to roll with it, right? Bad. So, not only were they bullies, they were self-righteous bullies. How comforting for us. Moreover, they were deadly serious about a concept which is really dear to us and with which you better not mess around. You see, we are quite liberal in the West. You can mess with a lot of things. Chief among them, human rights. But also the environment, welfare, health. Or to summarize, if you are a colored poor woman living on a tiny island in the Pacific, barely above sea level, well, we're just going to have a lot of fun with you. But we're also able to get our thoughts straight and take a stand when seriousness is required of us. For instance, property and ownership are kind of a touchy subject. And just like back in Rome, the richer you are, the more the state is going to be willing to take a stand to defend your right. Last but not least, can you believe it? We even have passion in common with these people. Slavery. Yeah, Romans love slavery. Just like today, there was the bedrock of the Roman economy. Well, not exactly like today, they were obviously more blatant about it, but at least most slaves were where they were slaves, if you catch my drift. They were so aware of it that sometimes they even dared revolt and waged wars against their former masters. If you are wondering how these wars ended, picture one of the main highways in your country, with 6,000 Jesus Christ agonizing along it from north to south. This was the ending for the most successful of these revolts. I told you, you didn't mess around with these people's property. Especially if you were their property. So that's one part of the fascination. They went big, military speaking at least. They developed a complex law system, the core of which was property. And slavery was at the heart of the economic system. And you can already see that you could spend hours and hours talking about those topics alone. And obviously you've got other side topics as important as those, such as empire management. Emperor Tiberius described ruling the empire as similar to holding a wolf by the ears. We'll see that a big part of the world's job is to cope with foreign and enemy threats and securing his own regime from internal threats, military coups, usurpation, and so and so on. But think about the imperial system itself. How do you actually manage an empire that big with the communication of the time? It took something like, at best, three months for an official to travel from the Euphrates to Adrian's Wall in Britannia, when today the same overland journey would take, at worst, two weeks. Even considering only messengers using the official road system and changing horses regularly, 
they would cover something like 250 kilometers a day, which is already quite impressive, don't get me wrong. But it's 4,000 kilometers from Adrian's Wall to the Euphrates, so you do the maths. In the best case scenario, it would take something like 16 days to get a simple message from one room of the Empire to the other. But this complex, powerful, advanced centuries of structure fell down, and this questions our modern-day ability to maintain our own matrix. For the last centuries, people have been wondering what was the root cause of this fall because they wanted to prevent this from happening to their own society. Well, actually, in most cases, people already have an idea of what's wrong in their own society, or they already decided what's wrong, and they just want to use the fall of Rome to back their theory. There's too much immigration in Europe. Remember, that's how Rome fell. We need to keep this under control. Or corruptions prevent the system to work properly. Look at what it did to Rome. Or too higher taxation will prevent the economy from thriving. Look at the burden the Romans of the 4th century had to bear. There's actually a German scholar named Alexander Demant, who in the 1980s actually took stock of all the causes advanced in historiography to explain the fall of Rome and he found no fewer than 210 of them. Here's a selection of the most surprising. Fear of life. Female emancipation. Impotence. Lack of male dignity. Lack of seriousness. Prostitution. Sexuality. Shamelessness. Socialism of the state. Pressure of terrorism. Tristesse. Decline of Nordic character. Capitalism, blood poisoning, Bolshevization, and no kidding, Jewish influence. So, good luck to find the truth. A little hint, it's probably none of those I've just mentioned. Here on this show, I'm going to share with you a narrative which I find quite convincing, but bear in mind that it's just one narrative among others. Beyond the fact that it's quite a sound explanation, what I really like about this version is that it's rooted in Roman history and that it's pretty hard to draw a parallel with nowadays. You can't really use it to serve your own agenda because it's too peculiar to the 5th century. But before we get to our narrative and find out what happens to this massive fleet in 468 AD, we need to have a proper understanding of the Roman Empire. For most of us, Rome is mainly the background of a good Hollywood peplum. I mean, the movie Gladiator by Ridley Scott has probably had more influence over our idea of what Rome was than Cicero's return will ever have. And I'm not criticizing, I'm a big fan of historical movies, no matter how flawed they might be. At least, they provide us with some kind of mind frame to work with. But the beginning of the end for the Romans started in 376 AD, and we need to set the stage for this narrative for it's quite different from the one in Gladiator, which takes place around 180 AD. And in 200 years, a lot of things happen. Now, we cannot go through all of Rome history, can we? So let's take into consideration a few key features. First of all, what is Rome? Well, Rome is not just the light. Just like most of human societies before the Industrial Revolution, it is above all a rural economy, and even though being such a vast and complex empire left room for other more diverse economic activities, let us not fool ourselves. Agriculture made up at least 80% of the GDP. This means that most of the available wealth, or most of the created wealth, is linked to the land and its crops. Now, as God ordained things properly and evenly, some people will have the wealth, 
and some others will have the hunger, meaning that the land was mainly in the hands of a tiny aristocratic landowner's class. They owned the land, therefore they owned the economy and made up the rich elite of the emperor and chief among them was the emperor. Bear in mind that, in antiquity, being rich didn't mean that you were doing well or earning a lot of money. No, in antiquity you were rich when you had so much money that you didn't need to work. Ever. While the common folks and the slaves were breaking their backs, working the fields or the mines, this elite had the time and the resources to get a proper education and to engage in politics. So they're also the classes running the administration of the empire and, for a time, its military. You need to understand that, even when we are talking about the Roman Republic, the regime which preceded the empire, Rome is not a system from the people, by the people, for the people, but rather a matrix from the patricians, by the patricians, for the patricians. And by patricians we mean aristocrats. Therefore, the state apparatus is mainly the result of these guys paying taxes to maintain armies which will in turn protect their lands from foreign invasion and uphold their property rights to these lands. The politically active landowning class probably amounted to less than 5% of the population and owned over 80% of the land, maybe much more. Take also into consideration that the wealth and the status of this elite being based on lands, it is then based on unmovable assets. And we will see that it can be very difficult to be a patriot when upholding your privileges depends on your capacity of being, let's say, loyally flexible. So remember, when we are talking about the Romans, we mainly mean these super-rich landowners and the militaries. Another key feature is that Rome is an empire, even during the Republic. Roman powers covers miscellaneous populations and territories whose identities diverge. They might share some common features, such as a certain Roman way of life, but their religions, the law under which they live, especially in the eastern part of the empire, the social codes, etc., etc., all of this might be quite different depending on whether you live. The empire stretched from modern-day England to modern-day Iraq, engulfing all the territories in North Africa and, broadly speaking, all of the European territories below the Rhine and the Danube rivers. So, it's not the Mongol Empire, but still it's pretty big, especially for the time. And broadly speaking, you have three important frontiers. The Rhine, the Danube, and the eastern frontier on the Euphrates, against the Parthian and then the Sassanid Empire, modern-day Iran. It's basically the same empire, but ruled by different dynasties. These frontiers are important because at the time, most of the threats the empire was facing used to come from those borders, and chief among them, the eastern frontier. The Parthian Empire, which then became the Sassanid Empire, once again modern-day Iran and some of the Iraqi territories, was the other alpha dog of the time, the only real rival to Roman hegemony. The Sassanid Empire enjoyed the same level of development, an administration, a standing army, and a lot that big for Roman defeats and eastern Roman territories. Some centuries ago, the Achaemenid Empire broadly occupied the same territories as they did, plus the eastern Roman territories of Egypt, Syria, and Cappadocia, or modern-day Turkey. So the Sassanids felt justified in trying to conquer the eastern part of the Roman Empire. But truth be told, most of the time, whether it is to earn some prestige at home or to plunder, these wars are usually more about sending a message than conquering any territory for real. Therefore, just like on the Rhine and on the Danube, the Romans were dealing with raids or forays. 
Nonetheless, they took them very seriously because, unlike on the Rhine or on the Danube, they were always thousands strong, led by real armies and backed by a strong and solid state. On the other hand, on the Rhine and Danube frontiers, the Romans were dealing with barbarians, Germanic tribes, confederation of tribes at best. No real state, no standing armies, a lower state of development, and a lot of divisions that the Romans knew how to exploit. Every 25 years or so, they would set in motion a complex game of diplomacy to create Germanic iron tribes along the frontier, which would act as a buffer between the empire and the other Germanic tribes to prevent them from attacking the empire or uniting into a super-confederation. But barbarians being barbarians, as the time passed, they would unravel this complex, civilized sound masterpiece of diplomacy, forcing the Romans to bring those stinky, dirty Germans to their senses through steel and fire. Remember, kids, nothing better than murder, rape, and enslavement to make your neighbors see things your way. Besides these big campaigns to put their house in order, most of the trouble was caused by war bands of a few hundred warriors raiding the empire to plunder and bring back as much wealth as possible to Germania. So, to summarize, we are talking about a several centuries old huge empire around the Mediterranean Sea, managed by and for a tiny landowning aristocratic super-rich class, whose main enemies are the German barbarians come on the Rhine and Danube, and the other superpower of the time, the centuries-old Persian Empire on the other side of the Euphrates. So far, nothing really surprising. If your knowledge of the Roman Empire doesn't go beyond most of Hollywood movies, though, the following three features should change your view of the Roman Empire. So, first feature, let's talk about the Romans' economy. The Romans. All along Roman history, every single time an emperor was facing both a foreign enemy and an usurper, he would always go for the traitor, if he could. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean... If you were dealing with a home invader situation, who would you go for? If you could only get rid of one of them, would you go for the thief or the serial killer? If you could dispose of only one of them, you would confront the one who is here to kill you. As we've seen previously, either Germans or Persians, foreign threats mostly led to raids and forests. Even Shapur the Great, the most ambitious Sassanid kings of kings of the Sassanid Empire, only claimed most of the Eastern Roman Empire, not the whole empire. Foreign invasions did not directly undermine an emperor's authority or legitimacy. You could always trade territories for time and get them back once your house was in order. That was bad PR and could lead to serious troubles, but in comparison to I think I can do a better job than him, what about making him step down by separating his head from his shoulders? The choice is pretty easy. As a matter of fact, civil wars were pretty common in Roman history. They were so common that it's quite amazing that the empire was able to endure for so long. Of course, there was a big peak with the crisis of the 3rd century, when between 235 AD and 284 AD, Rome saw no fewer than 25 emperors succeeding each other, which makes an average reign of roughly two years for an office which was supposed to be for life. Good job, guys. But even after the crisis of the 3rd century, civil wars remained pretty common during the 4th and the 5th centuries. The empire was born out of civil wars. First, Caesar's war against the Senate, which he won to be assassinated in the Senate House by those he had defeated and pardoned. And right after Caesar's assassination, there was another civil war between the Senate, the future first emperor Augustus, and Caesar's right hand, Mark Anthony. 
Once the empire was established, it remained mostly stable for the first two centuries, even though some civil wars still sparked from time to time, mainly at the end of a dynasty. But remember when I said that in the 3rd century, in a 50-year span, 25 men became emperors? Well, between 31 BC and 180 AD, so over roughly two centuries and a half, there were only 16 emperors, which makes an average reign of 13 years. Augustus, the first emperor, reigned over 40 years. So, in order to make it simple, keep in mind that from the 1st centuries until the 3rd, civil wars were not an issue, but that from the 3rd centuries onwards, almost every generation could expect to live through at least one civil war. So how come there were so many civil wars? And why did it peak from the 3rd century onward? Well, as usual, there's no simple explanation to this phenomenon. Here are some reasons which might shed some light on the matter. First, the lack of a clear succession rule and the nature of the imperial regime. The empire was not established and proclaimed as such by Augustus, the first emperor, because the last guy who had done so had been assassinated in the Senate house by his former peers. If you've been paying attention to the show, you remember that that guy was Julius Caesar, Augustus' adoptive father and biological great-uncle. Rome was initially funded as a monarchy, but the patrician, the rich guys, put an end to this regime for it was deemed too tyrannic and established a republic, ruled by them through elections and a subtle system of checks and balance. Of course, patricians were way superior to any plebeian. After all, who was actually working while the others were willing during life on earth? But no patrician was supposed to be superior to another. They were abusely competing with each other for prestige and positions, but none of them was supposed to be able to muster so much power as to establish a tyranny. If your peers suspected you of trying to become a king, well, you were likely to end up Julius Caesar. So when Augustus actually established his tyranny, he played it smart. He portrayed himself as the first citizen of the Republic, or Princeps Senatus, which means first of the Senate. He claimed to be the restorer of the Republic, which had crumbled because of the civil wars. Officially, then, he was not establishing a dictatorship, but for all intents and purposes, he was. See, for instance, he was not gathering other powers under his direct role. Not at all. He was just reluctantly accepting the Senate's plea, who begged him to be the protector of the Republic. It's a little bit like when your wife consults your public on something she already privately decided and put in motion. So you can look cool and preserve your self-esteem and public image. But there's no kidding around. She knows and you know who's calling the shots. And she knows you know it, and that there's nothing you can do about it, unless you are willing to go through one hell of a fight, and you both know that it's not going to happen. Plus, most of the time, she's right. So the Principate, the imperial regime established by Augustus, tried as much as possible to preserve the illusion of a republican regime. Many former positions remained available, and the senators were still eligible for them, but the emperor was the dual alpha dog, although he did not represent himself as such, and he showed reverence to the patricians. Therefore, for the sake of this theatrical play, no law decree was ever adopted to provide a legal frame for succession. So, if the emperor had been far-sighted, as Augustus had been, he would already make sure that his heir would quarrel with him or already had the necessary powers invested in him before the emperor died. Usually, the closest male relative to the dead emperor would become the new leader. But what happens when there is no close male relative to the dead emperor? Or when did he not call rule with one of them? What happens when the Senate proclaims one emperor 
and the army another. Without any legal frame and in the absence of a clear legitimate heir to the throne, the imperial crown belonged to anyone able to muster the monopoly on violence. Ultimately, the empire, no matter the disguise used to make it acceptable, was a military dictatorship, so when legitimacy was lacking, patricians or generals in command of Roman armies were usually eligible candidates to the throne when they were able to get rid of any opponent. So first case scenario, if the emperor was facing a legitimacy crisis, civil war might ensue because military power upheld the right to the throne as much as dynastic legitimacy. The second reason why there were so many civil wars is directly linked to the legitimacy in the army. If your power ultimately rests upon your control of the army, you better make sure soldiers ended your best friends. Even if the emperor had the dynastic legitimacy or and the backing of the senate, if he lacked the legitimacy in the eyes of the army or part of the army, a general might be acclaimed emperor because his troop considered him more fit to the task. That's actually even worse than that. An emperor might even get killed by his own troops. For instance, in 235, Severus Alexander was killed by his own men for being too much of a sissy and a mummy's boy. Can you imagine that? The sissy would rather bribe German tribes than defeat them in battle. Oh, and did I mention that this idea was suggested by his mother? Come on, you can't really blame the Romans on that one. Who could trust a guy who actually tried to solve a war through diplomacy instead of good old violence and slaughter? Severus Alexander had been emperor for 13 years and was the heir of an almost 50 years old dynasty. Sure, he became an emperor very young and his forebears became the imperial family through, surprise, civil war. But still, he was not just a parvenu who had been emperor for two months after bribing the Praetorian guard to acclaim him as an emperor. And yet, he was killed for appearing too weak to his men. Had he listened to his forebears' advice, the general and emperor Septimius Severus, the founder of the dynasty, he would have understood better what he was actually in for. Septimius Severus allegedly said to his sons just before dying, quote, Be harmonious with each other. Don't fight each other. Well, they did not really pay attention to that part because one of the brothers killed the other in front of their mother. Happy Mother's Day! So, be harmonious, enrich the soldiers, and scorn all of the men. End quote. The guy had no illusion whatsoever about his legitimacy. He had actually raised the army pay for the first time in over a century. So the army was the main source, if not the only source of an emperor's power. Therefore it was also the main source of his demise. And it was a big army stretching from one end of the empire to the other, with many generals controlling many men, stationed far away from the emperor. And during the second century, the threats multiplied, in the east, on the Rhine, on the Danube, and the emperor could not be everywhere. Most men in the army were recruited where they were stationed. That means most legions were from the borders they were defending. Should the general be very successful or a territory's defense neglected by the central authority, the soldiers might proclaim their own general emperor and make him responsible to protect their interests. Sometimes, Generals would proclaim emperor against their own will. No need to say that this was a fertile context for paranoia and for ambitious men to play on the emperor's fears. Here's an interesting story which should shed some light on how ambition can not only cause someone's demise but also take a whole empire to the brink of civil war. Sylvanus was an officer who had defected to the emperor Constantius during a civil war. 
he was awarded with the command of the army in Gaul, which was quite a powerful position and provided a great military strength. Patronage ruled the Roman world, and it was very common to write and to benefit from recommendation letters. Another parallel with our time, in which networking is so important. Social capital can be crucial to your career, or even your survival. Thus, early on his command, Silvanus naturally provided an imperial official with letters of recommendation bearing his signature. But this official erased the ink of the text in order to forge fake compromising letters, suggesting plans to start a rebellion against the Emperor Constantius. These forged letters were then addressed to several senior officers, officials, administrators, and eventually a Praetorian prefect named Lampadius. When he heard of the plot, he handed the letters over to the Emperor. Sylvanus' signature was on the letters, but it was not the only man linked to the imaginary plot. The real conspirators had also quoted other prominent men. The emperor, convinced that he was now dealing with a life-and-death threat, wanted them arrested. So just with a little whisper in the emperor's ear, you could get rid of the competition and have your personal vendetta. Top positions in the imperial army or administration brought outrageous wealth and decisive influence. You were also sure to make enemies, and once you started dancing, you could not stop. Your safety depended upon your position and influence. The backstabbing game could never stop. In the case of Silvanus, other high-ranking officers close to the emperor protested his innocence, and an investigation proved that the documents had been forged. But the investigation had been launched only after the right people had lobbied the imperial court the right way. The first imperial response had been arrest, and messengers had been sent to see to it, and it makes sense, if you're an emperor who moreover already experienced a civil war, it is very risky not to nip a conspiracy in the bud. If you wait too long, the rebellion might get momentum, and when you eventually take action, it's already too late and the tides have changed. So, even though Sylvanus' name had been cleared, due to the slow pace of communication, all he knew was that the emperor now had set his mind to have him arrested and most likely killed. Now, if you put yourself in Sylvanus' shoes, What's the logical answer to such a situation? Your only hope lies in making a bid for the imperial throne, even though you never wanted the job in the first place. So that's what he did. The crisis did not blow into a full civil war, though, for Sylvanus eventually got killed before things could start in earnest. But this story allows us to catch a glimpse into how precarious the position of an emperor was and how fragile the whole state apparatus was as well. Ambition, pride, fear self-preservation instinct, sense of abandonment, defeat or absence of an apparent heir, all those things could trigger a major civil war. The French military architect Vauban used to say that war is a rich man's luxury. The drain of all those civil wars on the emperor's economy, manpower, political stability and eventually on its security was huge. Think about manpower, for instance. Nowadays, a soldier's life is pretty cheap. No offense to those among you who serve, but... Since the introduction of firearms, the value of a soldier has only continued to decrease with the passage of time. This is why riflemen replace bowmen. I'm not saying that today any civilian is worth a professional soldier, or, or that field experience, discipline, or esprit de corps don't matter. Of course they do. And elite troops are also very valuable. But back then it was even more valuable. It took years to form a legionary, to teach him the required discipline, the synchronized movements, the steadiness in battle, the amazing physical endurance needed for long marches and heavy construction works. Those men were enlisted for two decades, and their life was hard and dangerous. 
the Empire used to face difficulties to recruit troops, not only due to a lack of volunteers, but also because landlords were reluctant to lose manpower who could work their fields. So, providing you were able to secure victory over an usurper at the price of over 20,000 casualties, even if those casualties were mainly your opponent's casualties, they were eventually the casualties of the Empire, and you just had lost an army. It would take years to replace those losses, and in the meantime, less troops were available to fend off invasions. So once again, to summarize, we are talking about a several centuries old huge empire around the Mediterranean Sea, managed by and for a tiny landowning aristocratic super-rich class, whose main enemies are the German barbarians come on the Rhine and Danube, and the other superpower at the time, the centuries-old Persian-slash-Sassanid Empire, on the other side of the Euphrates. And this Roman Empire is plagued by civil wars, which cause a great deal of political instability and military insecurity. There are two more features we need to consider before moving in our story. Once again, I assume you're not that familiar with the late Roman Empire, so if it's not the case, please feel free to skip this part as well. When most of us think about empires, we think of Napoleon, Genghis Khan, Caesar, the Tsar. In short, we think of a one-man job. However, we saw that being an emperor was quite an earth-consuming job and that one of the main difficulties of such a position was for one man to be able to control and oversee such a vast territory. One other strategy used to cope with this issue was co-ruling with an emperor. We already mentioned this governmental tool as a way to facilitate succession, but the scope of the power-sharing agreement went often much further. Thus, by the end of the 3rd century, after the repeated civil wars, a new emperor, Diocletian, implemented the so-called Tetrarchy, or Rule of Four. In this system, there were four emperors, two seniors and two juniors, who co-ruled the empire. The system worked for roughly 20 years, mostly as long as Diocletian was part of the game and could maintain it through his own charisma and influence. But the game eventually collapsed and led to, surprise, a new civil war. By the late empire, having at least two emperors became a necessity. Bits for the throne, the Persian threat, the barbarian threats, the handling of a complex administration, the satisfaction of the militaries, driving away invaders, handling petition and imparting justice, all of this had become just too much for one man, and it sometimes proved to be too much for two as well. But keep in mind that most of the time, when we are dealing with emperors, we are dealing with egomaniacs. Most of them reach the position either through sheer violence or as designated successors, and in either case, they were led to believe that they had no peers. So, do not see this power-sharing agreement as one empire under the rule of two men working harmoniously for the greater good of the empire, but rather as two men dividing the empire in two, and each one of them as the sole alpha dog on his own turf. This led to the emergence of the Western and of the Eastern Empire. Imagine the USA, cut into right in the middle, and led by two different authorities, but sharing the same political, juridical, and military system. As mentioned previously, the last time the emperor was reunited was in 395 AD, and this lasted just a few months. However, there was still a strong connection between both halves of the empire, and the eastern part tried on several occasions to assist and even to restore its western counterpart. Most of the time, dynastic ties existed between the east and the west, so this division was not a complete partition either. However, this solution did not put an end to civil wars, and it sometimes even increased the emperor's paranoia. There was no reason to fear that a general would muster enough support to make a bid for the throne, for there was already a guy in place who already had enough support and military might to do so. Having two emperors might have been a good idea on paper, but 
this could only work when there was enough trust between both men. Yet, believe it or not, men raised in a culture of violence and whose position depends on the monopoly of violence, well, they tend to have trust issues. So remember, when we are talking about the Roman Empire as a whole, it does not necessarily mean one emperor and one empire, especially by the late period. At last, let's talk about religion. Early in Roman history, the Romans used to talk to several imaginary friends, and they were quite open-minded regarding imaginary friends' relationships, as long as you honored the emperors and included the dead ones in your official list of important mighty imaginary bodies. During the early empire, the Christians were just a group among others, who had their own made-up explanation for life and the universe. But they were a tiny minority. But eventually, their own fantasy would become the empire official state-backed fantasy. And, oh boy, this was not a manifest destiny at all. There was some kind of miracle at work here. First, remember that Christianity stems from Judaism. Jesus was a Jew, and in the beginning, Christianity was not much more than a Jewish sect. Yet, if the Jews were respected by the Romans because Judaism was ancient and the Romans revered everything which was ancient, they were far from being loved. First, those people were troublemakers, and the gods down them, they were odd. I mean, any idiot knows that there are several imaginary friends in the universe, but those guys think there is only one and that he's all-powerful and all. So Christians came from a group which was tolerated, but not particularly appreciated within the empire. But instead of taking into consideration that most of the Romans already disliked them for seeing them as Jew-like people, unlike the real Jews, they started to stop offering sacrifice to the emperor, and in that way, they refused to take part in the public life. In the beginning, their persecution is triggered not so much on religious grounds, but because by refusing to comply with the social practice of sacrifice, for instance, they marginalized themselves, and thus became a suspicious side group. Kind of, so you live among us, but you don't want to live like us, and you don't like our ways? Oh, you see the picture. You might think that it's not an issue, and that they can always make more converts, become bigger and bigger, and eventually influence the right people into changing social habits, which is what eventually happened. But once again, this was not an easy task. Remember that Jesus died crucified. Nowadays it seems quite cruel, but we lost track with the symbolic meaning of such a death back then. The king of heavens, God made man, died a slave's death. He died worse than a loser. Okay, so to a Christian, that makes him a merciful God. That makes him a God close to man. He showed the way to love and peace, plus he was resurrected a few days later. I understand all of that. But you can turn it any way you want. From a Roman perspective, you come to me asking me to turn away from powerful centuries-old ancient deities and to incur their wrath in order to seek the blessing and the protection of a loser whose divinity is denied by the truth themselves and the God knows how old those people are. So for them to reject one of their own and to deliver him to the Roman authorities, he must have been a real piece of work. And on top of that, our soldiers tortured him and killed him. So now you are telling me that we are the baddies? We are God-killers? And you want me to adore the god that we killed? Yeah, right. Makes total sense. God? But even though this seemed to be the most impossible sale ever to be made, when you've got God on your side, or chance, depending on whether you believe in talking snakes or not, the deal was eventually made. It took almost three centuries and several persecutions before God the Merciful decided to jump in and provide some little help for his friends 
but in 312, Constantine, future sole emperor of the empire, found the true imaginary friend and embraced Christianity. His leap of faith was one of the most important decisions in world history. With his backing, a minority of then persecuted religion would now become the official state religion. And once Christianity had the favors of the state, most people, or at least most people who mattered, wanted in. Christianization of the empire worked the same way as Romanization of the empire, not through coercion, but rather through the strong incentive it represented. Becoming Christian would grant you the favors of the emperor and of the state. If you wanted to have a career, if you were looking for an interesting position within the empire administration, for instance, to have a say in taxation or to develop your connections, being Christian was the right choice. By the end of the 3rd century and the early 4th century, not everybody was a Christian, but most of the elite had converted to Christianity. The church worked hand-in-head with the state. The emperor was God's choice to lead the civilized world and protect Christianity. He called the bishop councils, the church top officials were allowed to use the imperial fast transportation system, the church territorial division was modeled on the emperor's one, and Christianity became the state religion by 380, through the Edict of Thessalonica. By the end of the 4th century, the empire still stands strong and rich. It is a vast Christian state, usually ruled by two emperors, through a mighty military apparatus and for the benefit of a tiny landowning class. So, how did the barbarians come to overcome the empire? How do you deliver a killing blow to a several centuries more developed structure than your tribes? Well, it actually took more than one blow, but the first one was delivered in the eastern part of the empire, in the Balkans, below the Danube in 376 AD. At this time, the empire was ruled by two emperors, and the one ruling in the east was Valence. Now, we'll never know Valence as good as we know Winston Churchill or even a Napoleon. We obviously have much less material, but what we know can allow us to draw certain conclusions. First, Valence was not an emperor from a century-old dynasty. He and his brother were the first men from the family to reach this position. Valence was made emperor by his brother in 364, and his brother became emperor himself by election. High-ranking army officer and civil servants picked him up to don the purple. Now, if you feel that Valence's position is pretty shaky, you are not the only one. And within a year into his reign, a guy tries to usurp his throne. This usurpation attempt was almost successful. The usurper managed to take control of the eastern capital, Constantinople, of the army in the Balkans, and of several important cities before being crushed by Valence. So, I can't tell you what Valence had for breakfast every morning, but I think we can assume that he did not feel very safe in his position and had a major legitimacy complex. I mean, not only was he not born in the purple, meaning he was not from the imperial family, not only did he get the job because his brother said so, but even his brother only got the job because the guy he's now supposed to come and said so, and only as a compromise. Last but not least, Valence had had virtually no military experience in his life, so a few more penalties for his legitimacy in the eyes of the army. Please consider that contrary to the early days of the empire, by the mid-period, emperors were no longer the first citizens of the state. All pretense was gone. They were the leaders chosen by the Christian god to rule and protect its people on earth. They were represented and were expected to behave almost as divine figures, beings above mere mortals. The etiquette and all the imperial display of power served to turn the emperor into an impressive figure and to elevate him above all others. 
a 4th century historian gave us a description of the Emperor Constantius II, who, in his eyes, embodied best this superhuman nature. This is what was now expected from emperors. Quote, As if his neck were in a vice, he kept the gaze of his eyes straight ahead, and turned his face neither to the right nor left, nor did he nod, nor was he ever seen to spit or to wipe or rub his face or nose, or move his hands about. End quote. Well, try to act as a ruler chosen by God, to whom all must bow, when you are second-class third choice. I can imagine the following thought nagging Valen's mind constantly. Whispers. They must whisper you are no emperor. You are just like us. We chose you. We made you what you are. Don't forget. Don't sleep. So right from the start, no matter how cool the man might have been, there was a lot of pressure on Valen's shoulders to prove that his brother's choice had God's approval. Yet, his reign started in a particular context. Being in charge of the eastern part of the empire, Valens had two main fronts to handle. One on the Danube, north of the Balkans against the German Goths, and one in Mesopotamia, more than the Turkey, Iraq, and Syria, against the Sassanid Empire. As commander-in-chief and God's appointed leader, military victory was the best way to prove that, that he had God's favor. So at any rate, Valens had to wage some kind of war. But in his case, any victory will not do. He had to launch a major successful campaign against the Sassanid Empire to be crowned with a clear-cut victory. You see, the two last emperors who preceded Valens left him a very, very nasty legacy. The first one, the Emperor Julian, had launched a major campaign against the Sassanids, and then had to suffer a humiliating retreat without achieving any of his war goals. During the retreat, he was killed while charging recklessly on the occasion of a minor skirmish. His successor Jovian then agreed to an embarrassing peace treaty which caused the loss for Rome of several territories and of the advanced fortresses on the eastern frontier. He also died a few months later. So, a lot of payback was expected. The Roman elite would not resign itself to such a disgraceful defeat. The death of an emperor, the loss of territory and prestige. But on top of that, the Emperor Julian, the one who initiated this disastrous war, he was a pagan which is the reason why he is called the apostate by the church. Raised as a Christian, he proved to be a pagan and did his best to reinstate the pagan religions and put an end to Christianity as the almost official state religion. And in the eyes of the Christians, meaning in the eyes of most of Constantinople elite, where did his pagan ways lead him to? To a humiliating defeat and to his death. His successor Jovian was a Christian, but he accepted the defeat and signed an unacceptable peace treaty. And what did the Christian god think of that? Well, Jovian died also a few months later. So, now Valens not only has to prove that he's got more than his brother's blessing, not only does he need to prove that despite his lack of military experience, he can be a son commander-in-chief, not only does he need to restore Roman's prestige and military dominance against the Sassanid Empire, but in a nutshell, he needs to prove that, when backed by the only true god, Romans are more victorious. But as we mentioned previously, his ambition to avenge the Roman defeat against the Sassanid Empire is immediately thwarted by Procopius' usurpation attempt. And the threat is real. I mean, this is a very serious revolt. Procopius was a male relative of the former Emperor Julian, so he has some dynastic legitimacy. He started his coup in Constantinople, the capital of the Eastern Empire, at this time probably the most prestigious city in the Roman world, 
and he takes it over immediately. Several provinces side with Procopius, and the first army that Valens sends to put an end to all of this just defects and joins the usurper. So things look pretty bleak. So bleak that at some point, Valens breaks down and contemplates abdication and suicide. Remember, right now, he's just a nobody. A nobody with no military experience, picked up by his brother. And even assuming Valens has nerves of steel and an extraordinary charisma, he can't pull this off all on his own. He needs generals, soldiers, civil servants to do his bidding. Yet all of these men are also facing a crisis. They must pick up the right side. They must support the right candidate, otherwise they could end up on a list during the purge that would take place once the civil war is over. They have to bet on the right horse, or the consequences could be dire for them and their family. For some of them, though, the choice has already been made. Procopius has hostages in Constantinople. This kind of leverage is quite powerful when it comes to defection. So, not only do Procopius' credentials look good, but he's got some of the most important men of the empire by the balls. No wonder Valence loses it. We've got to cut the man some slack. His situation does look desperate. However, the emperor also has a few solid cards in his game. First, his brother, who reigns in the west. Well, he's a natural ally. His legitimacy in the West is solid for he has been a soldier in this part of the Empire for decades. He's a variable commander, often considered nowadays as the last great military emperor in the West, before the fall of the West. So, if the German barbarians could be kept quiet for a time, he could assist his brother to get rid of the usurper. Second, Valens still has a great army under his command. Remember, he meant to build up an expedition against the Sassanid Empire, and many men among the ranks really disliked Procopius to say the least. You see, Procopius was part of Julian's failed invasion of Mesopotamia. He had the command of the Northern Expeditionary Force, which was supposed to create a diversion to bait the Sassanid armies in the north, while Julian's real invasion was en route south. As per his orders, Procopius was then supposed to change course and join Julian's main army. Well, he never joined the Emperor's army in time. Julian died and the Romans had to suffer a humiliating defeat. This was not necessarily intended or Procopius' fault, but his absence or inability to rejoin the main army raised suspicion. He had over 30,000 men under his command. His contribution could have been decisive. So there's no love for Procopius, and there's probably some reason why nobody waited for him to arrive or suggested to make him emperor. You could understand why the army picked up Jovian to don the purple after the death of Julian. They were in a hurry, they needed to get an agreement with the Sassanid. But nobody waited for Procopius neither when Jovian died shortly after. Valentinian and Valens might have been picked up as a choice of compromise, but at least they were picked up, they were chosen. Procopius had been discarded whereas he had some kind of dynastic legitimacy. If you add to the above the taking of hostages and the call for help sent by Procopius to German Goths living north of the Danube, well, I bet it was not that hard to find people who just hated his guts. Eventually, Valens recovers, pulls himself together and marches on Constantinople with his generals. He meets Procopius in battle on two occasions and prevails mainly due to defections among the usurper's ranks. It seems that Valens' generals played a decisive part in these desertions. And what is interesting is that his generals remain mainly loyal to Valens because they were first and foremost devoted to his brother Valentian I. So, I don't want to diminish Valen's character, but man, once again, thank you big brother.
these episodes certainly proved that most of the key elements of the army had his back. But it also showed for the whole world to see that people, in particular in Constantinople, people were quick to give up on him, and that, if not for his brother, he could lose his head quite easily. It is fair to assume that Valens' thirst for legitimacy and to be his own man is now at his peak, and the question of the East still needs to be addressed. But he still cannot wage war against the Sassanian Empire because he's got a more pressing matter on his hands. Remember that Procopius had sent for help, asking the German Goths living north of the Danube to join him to support his bid for the throne. Well, thanks for Valence, they did not show up in time to save the usurper. But they have nonetheless crossed the frontier and now are rampaging in Thrace countryside, modern-day Turkey west of the Bosphorus. Meaning they are basically plundering the lands, farms and vineyards of Constantinople elite. For the second time, Valence has to postpone his plans for a war against the Sassanid Empire to defeat the barbarian Scots. We are talking about a three years war, between 367 and 369 AD, which allows the emperor to distinguish himself, if not as a glorious conqueror, at least as a competent commander. He successfully drives the Goths out of the empire and takes the war north of the Danube on the Goths' own territory. The conflict does not end with a resounding victory or very favorable treaty for the Romans, but Valens' northern front is secure, and no doubt he can now justifiably represent himself as a legitimate war leader and God-appointed emperor. The 369 peace treaty with the Goths is hastily concluded because the relations with the Sassanid Empire in the east are then quickly deteriorating due to Valens' violation of the treaty agreed upon by both empires after Julian's defeat. Constantinople started to violate the treaty while still waging war against the Goths. So, even in the thick of fighting with barbarians, Valens' mind was still set, at least partially, on restoring Roman standing in the east. I will not digress further in the particulars of the treaty violations. Let's just take into consideration that the other superpower of the time remains the most important international actor in the eyes of the Romans, and that Valens is still bent on having a showdown with the Sassanids. From 370 onwards, the emperor will spend most of his time preparing this confrontation. But he is once again delayed by two minor revolts, which, although not directly threatening his throne, needed to be crushed before being able to launch any major operation in Mesopotamia. All of this finally takes us to the summer of 376, with an emperor of Alliance who is now been reigning for over a decade. He is then in Antioch, once again poised to invade the Sassanid Empire, when he received the visits of ambassadors who bring him very bad news. Despite all the imperial propaganda effort to turn this new event into something positive and desired by the emperor, what they came to talk about was certainly not something Valence was expecting or hoping for. These men came from two Germanic tribes belonging to the Goths. I did not explain it clearly so far, but when I refer to the Germans, I'm not talking about a unified, homogeneous people, but rather different ethnic groups, diverse tribes with some common cultural features, speaking languages with Germanic roots, but which could be quite different from one another. In short, when we label people as Germans back then, this covers miscellaneous populations. Just like when we are talking about Westerners today, this could be the main label, but could refer to different subgroups, Americans, Europeans, which you could subdivide as well into smaller categories, such as the Canadians, the Mexicans, the French, the Spaniards, and so on and so on. Well, these ambassadors were Germans, more precisely Goths, meaning they came from a Germanic people living north of the Danube, mainly in modern-day Ukraine and Romania. Back then, Germanic people's territory covered a great deal of Central Europe, 
from the Rhine up to the Dnieper and beyond. These ambassadors were there on behalf of a tribe confederation, the Gretungi and the Tervingi, and they came to the emperor asking for asylum. Both Gretungi and Tervingi wanted to cross the Danube to find refuge within the Roman Empire, to start a new life in a richer and safer part of the world. I might be misleading you when I refer to these people as tribes. Do not picture a little crowd of a few hundreds or a few thousand Germans. It is really a confederation of tribes. And both people put together amounted to at least 100,000 people, maybe over 200,000 men, women and children. At any rate, there were too many to count and, in the words of our main source, quote, Officials responsible for the operation tried several times to calculate the numbers of the barbarians, but had to give up the attempt as hopeless. Trying to find their number is as vain as numbering the windswept Libyan sands. End quote. So, right when Valens was about to launch a major operation in Mesopotamia, for which he had gathered most of his mobile military forces in Syria, a wave of refugees come knocking at the gates on the other side of the empire. Dealing with an influx of asylum seekers, even for modern states, is still an organizational nightmare. Just look at the situation in the Middle East, in Turkey, in Greece, because of the civil war in modern-day Syria. You have to provide supplies, security, amenities, housing, distribute the populations. But nowadays at least, contrary to most conservative spheres, refugees, as a group, do not represent a major security threat. Yes, you might have problematic individuals among them, but just like in any other group of human beings. But as a group, as a people, as a whole, the Syrians, for instance, who came looking for a safe haven in Europe in 2015, did not constitute, technically speaking, an invading force. They were not armed. Well, if I'm being honest, I don't know that. Some of them might have been carrying knives or guns. After all, fleeing from a war zone is no gentle walk in the countryside on a sunny Sunday. But upon arrival in Turkey or Greece, they were not armed as an army can be armed. They did not show up with tanks organized as regiments and divisions under the command of officers. So, I'm not saying that migrations do not raise important questions or that they can never be a threat to the welcoming society. I bet the Palestinian people would have much to say about the consequences of Zionist immigration towards their homeland. But overall, nowadays, even the significant wave of refugees does not constitute a major military security issue for a solid state. Well, for the Germans and the Roman Empire of the first millennium, things were quite different. Those Goths did not leave their homeland individually, one after the other, in a continuous flow and just happened to all meet again by chance on the Roman frontier. They moved as a group. This migration was not the result of harsh conditions pushing more and more individuals to flee. It was a political decision, taken by leaders and approved by the people. It does not mean that individual migration didn't exist. There were plenty of German immigrants living near the frontier that had decided to move into the emperor on their own for centuries. But they usually were young, able fighting men who joined the Roman army. Because, beside the legions, there were very little opportunities to make it into the Roman Empire. There is no Roman dream as there is an American dream or a European dream nowadays. Although very modern in varied aspects, the Roman economy was not a modern industrial economy which could allow a single worker to extract a significant wealth to boost his own prospects in life, even at the cost of decent living conditions, as a lot of poor modern-day immigrants do. Even if you were highly skilled, as a blacksmith, for instance, in all likelihood, 
you were probably already very valuable in the Germanicum territory among Germans. So there is little economic incentive for you to move and even if you did so, your Roman counterparts were probably better than you were or better organized. If you had no particular skill, at best you could hope to work as a daily laborer, at worst end up enslaved. Either way, you are not going to be able to extract a significant wealth important enough to justify the trouble of moving. So with the exception of becoming a soldier, there is little economic incentive in moving alone on your own. The only economic migration gambit, which could guarantee a significant wealth boost, was to move to a place to take it over completely, to conquer it, to get control of its resources. And you cannot take over a whole area on your own, you need an army for that. Even when moving for political motivation, at a time when there was such a big slavery market, it proved safer to move in mass rather than individually or within a small group when crossing foreign tribes and Roman territory. So when a group was migrating, it had to move as a coherent political body. Otherwise, at best, it was not going to be able to extract any significant economic benefit, and at worst, they were going to be enslaved by whichever group of barbarians or empire that happened to stop them. There was no real international law, there is no NGOs or HCR, no human rights. You leave a land you know and most of your properties for a place you know very little about, taking as many possessions as you can hold on a wagon, just like today, only with no protection at all but your own. You are fair game, and your only insurance is your bargaining power. You have to move together in such a powerful position that you can either bargain for an interesting settlement deal or take what you need or aim for. So you move with your military organization. These Goths retain their weapons, their swords, their spears, their hammers, their axes, their bows, their cavalry, their infantry, their scouts. They are a little bit like what used to be said about Prussia. They are not so much a people with an army as an army with a people. Well, I might be overkilling it a little bit, but you see my point. At any rate, we will talk more about the migration and Germanic social organization in the second episode, because for now, I want to focus on the events themselves. So, Valence is not just dealing with maybe 200,000 peaceful refugees, desperate for his blessing to gain a safe haven within the empire. He is also facing an army of 20,000, maybe 30,000 men, while most of his mobile military forces are posted in Syria, ready to attack the Sassanid Empire. And we must also take into consideration the human aspect of the situation, the mindset of the warriors composing the Gothic army. For these men, this is not just a raid or a military adventure. 30,000 is about the size of the group of Goths Valens faced and repulsed in the late 60s. And some of them had indeed been from the same Tervingi confederation now showing up on the Danube as asylum seekers. But on this occasion, he had only fought an expeditionary force. This time, these Goths are with their family, their parents, their wives, their children. They have burned their boats, the ship has sailed, if they lose a battle or a war. This is over. They lose everything. The back is against the wall. They will not back down. They must either prevail or obtain a secure and satisfying bargain for their future. And when I paint the Gretungi and Tervingi as a people at war, this is not an overstatement. And this is especially true for the Gretungi. Both confederations have passed most of the last decade fighting, initially against the Romans, during the war with Valence, and then against the main cause of the sudden migration, the Huns. If I had to narrow down the reasons why Rome fell to only two causes, the Huns 
would probably be the second one. We'll talk about them in more details in a later part of the show. All you need to know right now is that they are nomadic people coming from the Great Plains of the Steppes from Central Asia. Upon arriving on the world stage, they revolutionize warfare in their own favor with the use of their horses and secret bows. To the Goths, they must have seemed both very scary and dangerous. Here's a description from a 4th century Roman historian of the ways of these nomads. Quote, the Huns enter battle drawn up in wedge-shaped masses, and as they are lightly equipped for swift motion and unexpected in action, they purposely divide suddenly into scattered bands and attack, rushing about in disorder here and there, dealing terrific slaughter. They fight from a distance with missiles having sharp bone, instead of their usual points, and join to the shafts with wonderful skill. Then, they get up over the intervening spaces and fight hand-to-hand with swords. They are so prodigiously ugly and bent, that they might be two-legged animals, or the figures crudely carved from stumps which are seen on the parapets of bridges. They have no buildings to shelter them, but avoid anything of the kind as carefully as we avoid living in the neighborhood of tombs. They roam at large over mountains and forests, and are inured from the cradle to cold, hunger, and thirst. On foreign soil, only extreme necessity can persuade them to come under a roof, since they believe it is not safe for them to do so. They are ill-fitted to fight on foot and remain glued to the horses, which are hardy but ugly beasts, on which they sometimes sit like women to perform their everyday business. Buying or selling, eating or drinking, are all done by day or night on horseback, and they even bow forward over the beast's narrow necks to enjoy a deep and dreamy sleep. When they need to debate some important matter, they conduct the conference in this imposture. At close quarters, they fight without regard for their lives, and while their opponents are guarding against sore thirst, they catch their limbs in lassos of twisted cloths, which make it impossible for them to ride or walk. None of them ploughs or ever touches a plough handle. They have no fixed abode, no home or law or settled manner of life, but wander like refugees with the wagons in which they live. In these, their wives with their filthy clothing, mate with their husbands, give birth to their children, and with them to the age of puberty. No one, if asked, can tell where he comes from, having been conceived in one place, born somewhere else, and re even further off. You cannot make truce with them, because they are quite unreliable, and easily swayed by any breath of rumor which promises advantage. Like unreasoning beasts, they are entirely at the mercy of the maddest impulses. They are totally ignorant of the distinction between right and wrong. Their speech is shifty and obscure, and they are under no restraint from religion or superstition. Their greed for gold is prodigious, and they are so fickle and prone to anger, that often in a single day, they will quarrel with the allies without any provocation, and then make it up again without anyone attempting to reconcile them. This wild race, moving without encumbrances and consumed by a savage passion to pillage the property of others, advanced robbing and slaughtering over the lands of their neighbors. End quote. The way they fight and wage war make them fast, deadly, but hard to hit, almost out of reach. If you add to this gloomy characteristic the fact that they look very different, not only culturally speaking but even physically, they were probably the closest thing a goth could identify to a demon or an alien. And don't take my word for it. Just go on Google Images and look for Hunt's cranial deformation. And then, imagine people looking like this, attacking you out of nowhere, slaughtering your village without breaking a sweat, and disappearing swiftly among the fire, the smoke, and the human cries of the fallen. 
There's no internet, no TV, no book. You have very limited knowledge of the existing world, and all you know has basically been passed on to you by the oral tradition of your forebears, of your parents, that had never met people as deadly as the Huns. It is hard to imagine the kind of impact these newcomers might have had on the psyche of individuals. But when one thinks about the sentiments that minorities, who just looked slightly different, have stirred up in history, the Christians, the Jews, the Armenians, how do you think a common German of the 5th century might have felt about these people who barely looked human and who slaughtered his relatives? Although probably shaken, the Gretunji try to resist the Huns as much as they can. Remember, this German tribe lives in modern-day Ukraine and above the Dnieper, and these new nomadic warriors come from the steppes, modern-day Russia. They have already conquered the former nomadic tribes that occupy this part of the steppes, the Alans, so the Goths know that they are next. But things don't go very well for the Gretunji, and you can tell because their first leader in charge of resisting the nomadic demons, a king named Ermanaric, basically accepts to be ritually sacrificed in order to appease the old goth wrath and regain their favor. It's not something you really see regularly nowadays, is it? It is all the more telling when you consider that Ermanaric was really some character. He's one of the first heroes recorded in Scandinavian sagas, and his name later echoed as far as Iceland. I must also indicate that the Goths are not native innocent bystanders. At the end of the 3rd century, or early 4th century, they had conquered this area east of the Carpathian Mountains and north of the Danube, subjugating the local populations who lived there. They fought along and against the Romans for decades during the 4th century. They are well versed in warfare. So, don't picture them as poor innocent Belgium or Poland during World War II, but rather as France. They know how to wage war and should be able to do much better, and yet, they get beaten over and over again. The guy who takes over after Manaric's ritual suicide gets his hand dirty as well and ends up being killed in battle. So at this point, the situation does look pretty bleak, and they decide to evacuate most of modern-day Ukraine and fall back north of modern-day Romania, but still in Ukraine, where they meet the Tervingi who join in the fight. Maybe the worst thing in this debacle is not so much the ongoing retreats and string of defeats as the fact that the Huns the Germans are facing are not a unified political entity like the Mongols will be. At this time in the story, there are still several kings and chiefs among the Huns, several tribes then. The Goths are even able to recruit some Huns to fight alongside with them, but they still fade to beat them, despite the Hunnic divisions. The Goths are supposedly just fighting off endemic raids. This is supposedly not a war of conquest which is waged upon them. But when you take into consideration the population displacements these raids triggered, they must have been considerably deadly or disrupting or both. And we will see that eventually, just like with the Alliance, the Huns will indeed conquer a lot of people living in Central Europe. The alliance with the Tervingi does not help much either, and both Gothic tribes which are now trying to resist on the banks of the river Dniester are flanked by another group of Huns, and the Germans have to retreat again, this time toward the Carpathian Mountains in Romania where they tried to use old Roman fortifications built when modern-day Romania, then called Dacia, was part of the Roman Empire. But this new line of defense does not hold off the Hunic attacks, and it's pretty clear, at least to some Goths, that this new front does not provide the security a thriving society might expect. Remember the questions I asked at the start of the show. 
If your country was waging a war, would you be able to realize if it was a decisive one or not? Would you be able to notice that your civilization, your way of life was collapsing? And if so, would you be able to stop it? Well, at this point of the war with the Huns, some of the Gretungi and of the Tervingi start to notice. They now know that they can neither beat the Huns nor escape their raids and attacks. So they are left with only three options. Option one is to surrender, like most of the Alliance did, the former nomadic tribe that the Huns conquered. But a surrender is a dicey proposition. This may fairly mean the end of their civilization, of their culture, or their religion. It can entail slavery, family separations, rapes, massacre. And think about pride. Would you submit to the people who have killed your relatives for years? Force you to leave your lands and your crops? No. Surrender will be the last option, the one forced onto them when there will be no other option. Option two is to keep on fighting, which might allow them to retain their independence, but they will never be safe, and under these uh, circumstances, they will never thrive. Option three is the one favored by any immigrant, to move towards a safer land which will offer better life opportunities. And so the group splits. A good chunk of the Gretungi and Tervingi opt for option two and keep on fighting, for a time at least, and another group leaves for the Danube to request asylum to the Roman Emperor. I believe then that we can all agree that the crowd waiting on the banks of the river while the ambassadors negotiate with Valence is therefore far from being a desperate, resourceless, innocent people at the mercy of the Romans' whim. They are war-hardened men, women and children. The whole population has been to some extent involved in the long fight against the Huns. It's roughly 1,100 kilometers or 680 miles from above the Dnieper to the Danube. And this calculation is based on a straight journey on nowadays roads. I-, I bet the long fighting retreat they had to go through was full of detours and harsh marshes on roadless countryside landscapes and might therefore have been much, much longer. But even if the hardest slog was only 1,100 kilometers, it's like fighting from Dunkirk in northern France to Barcelona in northeastern Spain against a terrible foe, with just a few short respites from time to time. All of this while securing food supply, keeping your people together, protecting the wagons, taking care of the weaklings, preventing or dealing with disease. And also keep in mind that although I have focused my narrative on the defeats, they have not been conquered or destroyed. They are no surrender monkeys. They did not bow. This in Kainfanglinger. I mean, these guys are tough. They are Spartan tough. They are also highly motivated. They are skilled veteran warriors who know how the Romans fight. The Tervingi have been a Roman client at least since 320 AD. Remember when we talk about Roman diplomatic policies to ensure peace on the frontier? Well, a Roman client is a tribe, or in the case of the Tervingi, a tribe confederation, living on the other side of the imperial frontier that has diplomatic agreements with the Romans, which usually contemplate that the tribe will ensure that no invasion or raids will take place on Roman territory. In exchange, not only will the legions let them be, but they will benefit from direct subsidies from the emperor and from the economic benefits that living near the empire entails. This is basically a buffer state with a regime friendly to the Romans. The diplomatic treaty usually also covered commercial agreements and military assistance so that the emperor might demand men from the Goths to fight in the Roman legions in the east. So Gothic men served in the Roman army, and Gothic merchants exchanged products, slaves and embers, for example, with the Eastern Roman Empire. At the very least, they know the place, 
They know the legions, the tactics, the way they work, the way they fight. They know what to expect of them. I said that Valence war against them in the 360s was not concluded with a very favorable peace treaty for the Romans, and I said so because the conflict was basically a draw. Take also into consideration that mass migration and conquest is part of the Gothic DNA. Their forebears move from the shores of the Baltic north of modern-day Poland towards the Black Sea. Conquest migration is part of their history. At last, as mentioned previously, this migration is a political decision. Aminus Marcellinus indicates that they debated this migration decision for quite a while and that the Trevingi even split over it. This is a deliberate, planned and calculated strategy. They move along and keep in touch with the Gretungi. They know through observation and via the merchants and Goths serving in the Roman armies that the imperial frontier lacks troops and that it's the right time to show up. While I'm writing this part of the podcast, I've just been watching the 2017 movie War of the Planet of the Apes, directed by Matt Reeves. And with all due respect for my German neighbors, and if you allow me the comparison, the apes and Caesar in the movie are faced with a similar situation. The forest in which they establish themselves at the end of the first movie of the saga has become a violent and dangerous war zone, and even though they were able to oppose the human military aggressions, this place no longer offers them the thriving environment they enjoyed in the second movie of the saga. So Caesar has decided that they need to move, and has sent his son and one of his lieutenants, Rocket, in reconnaissance to find a new thriving and safer territory where his people could immigrate. At the start of the movie, his son and Rocket come back to their main base in the forest and inform Caesar and the rest of the people that they have found such a place. He reminds them that together they are stronger, and they agree that they will move toward this new place. In the case of the Goths, it's slightly different, for they will need to either conquer the new area or obtain the emperor's approval to establish themselves in Thrace, the new promised land that they aim for. But the predicament is very similar. They are not fleeing in panic from the Huns. Although they suffered defeat over defeat, they have not been beaten yet. But they want to leave a highly volatile area for a richer and safer place. And the arm and coordination migration prove that they mean business. So, I don't really care how Valens and his panegyrists may paint this event for the court in Constantinople. The arrival of the Goths is very bad news for the emperor. And he knows it. We have seen that since the beginning of his reign, Valens proved to be a competent leader, and on this occasion, he tries to do as much damage control as he can. There's no doubt that he will need time to change his strategic predicament. Moving most of the Eastern Roman army from Syria to the Balkans is not something which can be done in a matter of weeks. Now, we are contemplating months of strategic redeployment. It is easy to forget how much logistical support was required to move major Roman armies. Here's an anecdote which can illustrate the scale of what we are talking about. During Julian's invasion of Mesopotamia in the early 60s, a similar operation to the one Valens was about to initiate, a group of Roman cavalrymen went into a great supply depot to get fodder for the horses. The fodder had been stacked high, and when they took what they needed from the bottom of the stack, collapsed on them and killed 50 men. 50 men were basically buried by an avalanche of supply. Therefore, it's not overstatement to say that moving a great army involved moving mountains. For those among you who want some kind of figure to put on this metaphor, according to Peter Ether, a single legion of 5,000 men, although by the late empire legions were usually made of less men, but a single legion of 5,000 men roughly needed 7,500 kilos of grain, 
and 450 kilos of fodder per day. We are talking about 225 and 13.5 tons a month for a single legion. So right off the bat, even before contemplating moving your mobile force, your field army, you're going to need a plan for its supply route over Syria, modern-day Turkey, Thrace, and the Balkans. And that's providing you can extract yourself from the dispute with the Sassanid Empire. So for months, the Empire will not have sufficient military manpower in the Balkans to deal with the crisis. This is a matter of fact from a practical standpoint, but also from a Roman tradition. Receptio, which means reception or welcoming, was the term used by the Romans to describe the process of dealing with large-scale migration. By 376 AD, this is far from being the first time that the empire was handling this kind of population movement. And so Receptio was now an old established and trusted Roman practice, with its rules and its process, and the main purpose of it was to make sure the integration of the immigrants within the empire took place on Roman's terms. And what the Romans basically wanted was surrender, or deditio. And the way to ensure that things would go the way Rome and Constantinople wanted them to go was to have an overwhelming military force so no one among the barbarians, soon to be Romans, would mess around. And even when a friendly population was welcomed by the emperor, they would still be surrounded by an unquestionable deterrent force. Ammianus Marcellinus, a Roman soldier-slash-historian of the 4th century, describes one of those receptio. Quote, When the emperor was seen on the high tribunal and was already preparing to deliver a most mild address, intending to speak to the barbarians as future obedient subjects, one of their number struck with savage madness, hurling his shoe at the tribunal, shouted, Mara! Mara! Which is their war cry. And the rude crowd following him suddenly raised the barbarian banner and with savage holes rushed upon the emperor himself. Although the attack was so sudden that they were only partly armed, with a loud battle cry, the Roman forces plunged into the bands of the savages. They butchered everything in their way, trampling underfoot without mercy the living, as well as those dying or dead. The rebels were completely overthrown, some being slain, others fleeing in terror in all directions, and a part of them who hoped to save their lives by begging for mercy in vain were cut down by repeated strokes. End quote. This is how any emperor expected to be able to handle a migration receptio, should things go south. So right from the start we can see that the arrival of the Goths in 376 already constitutes a clear break with the old Roman way of landing mice migration. The Romans were caught off guard, and Valens realizes immediately that things could spin out of control. So as I said, he tries to do damage control and designs three strategies to catch up with the events. First, he only agrees to welcome in one group, the Tervingi, who the Romans know best. The Gretungi are denied entrance, thus dividing the Goths, to make each group more manageable. Naval forces on the Danube and enough troops are positioned on the opposite banks of the river to make sure the Gretungi do not cross into the empire. His second gambit is to seek assistance from the Western Empire. Valens sends ambassadors to the West to prepare a joint military response. Keep in mind that even if he can extract himself from the conflict with the Sassanid Empire to deal with the Goths, he cannot leave Syria undefended. So if the Western Emperor can also contribute to the military force which will be assembled to make sure the Goths surrender, this will ensure a safer outcome. At last, the Romans secure the harvest of 376 AD. 
They take all their food supply, all their crops, and store them in fortified position or within cities protected by high walls. If the Germans are decent warriors on the battlefield, their siege warfare capacity is almost nile. They can neither storm nor besiege most of Roman cities. The Goths have taken some food with them, but you cannot stockpile much on wagons, horses, and baskets, or at least not as much as in a granary. On top of that, they have been spending several weeks on the banks of the Danube, waiting for the ambassadors to travel to Syria and for Valens' permission to cross. This last policy and the barbarian situation mean that the Goths will mainly depend on the Romans to get enough food to survive the winter. Valens is in Syria overseeing the redeployment of his mobile army, so the responsibility to manage the crossing of the Danube by the Tervingi and the surveillance of the Gretungi falls on a certain Lupicinus, commander of the field forces in Thrace, roughly modern-day Turkey west of the Bosphorus, southern Bulgaria, and northeastern Greece. Lupicinus is therefore the guy who must actually enforce the most unusual receptio. We already know that he does not have enough men. But moreover, the deal struck by the Tervingi ambassador with Valence did not contemplate a scattering and distribution of the Tervingi population in different provinces of the empire in order to break their political, cultural and military unity, as was the norm with former receptio. The Tervingi were allowed to cross the Danube as a whole, with their weapons, and to remain together until the Romans could find a province where they could allow them to establish themselves. This second departure from a trusted practice was forced on Valence by the respective military power of the Romans and other Germans in the Balkans. But the consequence is that Lupicinus must now walk on a very tight rope. He must stall until the emperor can arrive with enough military power to revise the condition of the receptio. The official history of what happens next puts the entire blame on the dishonesty and greed of Roman commanders and Roman officials. And I'm not saying that this account is wrong or false. But I just have an alternative interpretation that I would like to share with you. Just keep in mind that this is totally personal, and it's not necessarily the truth. In my view, the local Roman commanders and officials, civil servants, and so on, they knew the predicament. They knew that they didn't have enough men to face both the Tervingi and Gretungi and that even confronting only one other confederation was a dicey proposition. They also knew that the Germans did not want to rush into a fight. If they had to, they would. But this is not something they either expected or hoped for. And there were several proof of that. First of all, we already saw that it is very likely that the Goths knew that the Roman Danube frontier was undermanned. And this was probably one of the main reasons which pushed so many of them to seek asylum in the Roman Empire. They knew that at this time, their bargaining power to get insurance would be high. But although they knew that they could probably have crossed by force, they did not. Instead, they sent ambassadors and waited for weeks and weeks, rather than risk an open military confrontation right off the bat. Then, even when they were told that only half of them were granted permission to cross the Danube, they did not revolt. Once the Dervingi were on the opposite bank, even though they still maintained close communication with the Gretungi, they did not try to help them to cross. And at last, even if they were to engage in a fight and win a battle, it would be continuous warfare all over again, just like with the Huns, which was the main reason why they had decided to emigrate in the first place. Winning a battle would not destroy the Roman Empire nor give them control of the Empire. And once again, they are with the families. So the Goths would like to avoid war, not at all cost, but as much as possible. So, in my opinion, the Romans know they can push them around to some extent. And 
On the other hand, they do not want them to join force or get too comfortable piling up enough supply to allow them to launch a military campaign in the Balkans, increase their ranks with Slavic KPs and local Roman rebels or bandits. Plus, if the Tervingi leader has it easy, he can further consolidate his power. I have misled you a little bit about these Germans, for the narrative's sake. I have simplified things when I refer to the Goths or the Tervingi as a tribe. It's more like a confederation dominated by the Goths or dominated by the Tervingi, if you will. But behind the term Tervingi or Gretungi, you have several kings and groups. Alans, other Germanic tribes, subjugated populations from Romania. These ethnic groups were quite unified under the rule of the Tervingi. But the composition of what I have called, probably abusively, the Tervingi Confederation. This composition, if well exploited, could maybe allow the Romans to further divide these immigrants. So the Romans want them split and weaker, and in order to achieve this goal, they flex the only real muscle they have against the Goths right now, the food supply. Once the Tervingi run out of their own food, or of most of it, they totally depend on the Roman official supply. As per the historical sources, it is at this point of the narrative that dishonest and greedy Romans start to run a very profitable black market which basically amounts to food for slaves. Or if you prefer, Hey friend, how hungry are you? Are you hungry enough to sell your child into slavery? I mean, this is a fair deal. You get to eat, and your sole child will always and forever be fed. Plus, you still have five or six more, right? And what about this man? This is your slave, right? If you sell me the child and your slave, I add a big piece of pork to the package. Enough to have a banquet with your liegemen. Given your current situation, it would be nice for your political standing to be able to distribute some food, right? And if I'm not mistaken, this beast over there is an Alan, isn't he? He's not a goth. He's not even German. Would it really hurt to sell him? What do you say? Deal? Well, you get the gist of it. I have a really hard time believing that this highly dangerous black market could happen without the knowledge, approval, and above all control of the authorities, and that it was run for the sole purpose to make money. Don't get me wrong, the elite make mistakes, and of titanic proportion. The French military doctrine in 1940, the invasion of the USSR, Japan's war on America, Vietnam, the COVID-19 pandemic, we have countless examples of top authorities' blunders. But in the case of Lupicinus, he's on the front line, he's directly exposed, he has the operational knowledge and the information to know how far they can push things. The situation is pretty straightforward. And indeed, the black marketing of food for slaves, even if it most likely contributed to generate bad blood, it is not the spark which caused the war. So yes, the Romans most likely profited from it, and some of it might have been spontaneous and escaped official control. But in my view, which, once again, is not the sanctioned one, but in my view it might have been largely designed and controlled to weaken and divide the Goths. The weakening is pretty obvious, and it lasted for months. You take people from them, you deprive them of food, you generate despair and anxiety. As commented previously, this strategy could also help to exploit or generate divisions, depending on whom you sell the food to. It can also help to destabilize the position of the Tervingi leaders and make them more open or willing to accept new terms in exchange for food supply. Or have them overthrown in favor of more Roman-friendly individuals. This is maybe what allowed Lupicinus to have them leave the banks of the Danube for his regional headquarters in Marcinopol, thus taking them away from the Gretungi. Something along the lines of, 
If you were to move away from the river, it would be easier for me to supply your people. What do you say? But this is where my interpretation meets its limitation, because in order for Lupicinus to be able to supervise this new move, he has to use the truth that so far had been tasked with making sure that the Gretungi did not cross as well. Maybe Lupicinus had planned on the Tervingi moving willingly without the need to rely too much on Roman troops. Maybe he bet that the Gretungi would remain on the other side of the frontier, or that the naval forces would be enough to deter them from crossing. At any rate, whether I'm right and Lupicinus' plan backfired, or whether this situation is the result of Roman's mischief and inability to actually feed so many people, the end result is that with so little troops to oppose them, the Gretungi eventually crossed the river as well. And the Tervingi on their march towards Marchanople really take it easy to allow the Gothic ally to catch up with them. So Lupicinus now has twice as many people to deal with, politically and logistically speaking, and at least half of them are really pissed off. But this is not war, not yet, and this is really telling of the Gothic character. I mean, man, you've got to give it to them. I have a great deal of admiration for the Goths. Their story seems almost biblical. You could make such a great series or peplum about what these guys went and will go through. They're not only tough, but also smart and patient. So they keep their cool and their swords in their sheaths. However, Lupicinus, either as a last attempt to get control of the Tervingi or to appease them, organize a banquet with the leaders which will eventually cause the war. Once again, it's kind of hard to know exactly what the real motive behind this event was. According to Amianus Marcellinus, this time one thing led to another and the situation just turned south. Things got out of hands. However, this would not have been the first time that a Roman general organized an assassination attempt on a tribe leadership during a banquet. Lupicinus is really in a bad place at this stage of the story. Both Gothic tribes are now within Roman territory and are about to join one another. There is no way he will be able to control them, let alone dictate anything. At any rate, he's got maybe something of the order of 200,000 men, women and children to feed and if he does not want to do so or can't do it, they will revolt and take by force what they need. So maybe the plan behind this dinner invitation was just to get rid of the Tervigi kings and top commanders-in-chief in, in order either to put someone of his own picking at the head of the confederation, or at the very least, decisively contribute to the collapse of the military organization. If he can pull this off, he could use the new leader of the Tervingi to turn the tribe against the Gretungi and have both Gothic's people slaughter one another. But whether this was indeed the plan all along or just a big misunderstanding, the end result just makes things worse for the Romans. I will let Amianus Marcellinus recount the event, but just so you might have a little context, the Tervingi top leaders are invited to the banquet which takes place within the town walls, while the rest of the tribe, the 50,000 or 100,000 people or so, are left outside the town walls and are guarded by Roman soldiers. So, once the leaders have passed the city gates, they can no longer see what's happening. Here is Amianus Marcellinus' account of the banquet. Quote, Lupicinus invited Alviavius and Frittinger, he's referring to the top Tervingi leaders, most important kings. Lupicinus invited Alaviavius and Frittinger to dinner, but placed troops to keep the mass of the barbarians from the walls of the town. The latter made repeated requests to be allowed to enter to buy victuals, seeing that they were our subjects and allies, and finally quarrels broke out between the inhabitants and those excluded on such a scale that fighting became inevitable. The barbarians rose to madness by seeing some of the can carried away by force, killed and stripped of their arms a large contingent of our troops. 
News of this was secretly brought to Lupicinus, who, after a long sitting at an extravagantly luxurious meal followed by a noisy floor show, was muzzy and dropping with sleep. Guessing the outcome, he put to death the whole guard of honor which was waiting for the two Gothic princes outside his headquarters. The people surrounding the walls heard of this with great indignation. Uttering savage threats, they gradually thronged together to avenge the kings, whom they supposed to be prisoners. Fritinger, feeling that he might be kept as a hostage with the rest, was resourceful enough to cry out that there will be no avoiding a regular battle unless he were allowed to go with his companions to pacify his countrymen, whose conduct he ascribed to the belief that the chiefs had been done to death under a show of hospitality. This request was granted. They emerged to be greeted with cheers of joy, and then took horse and hurried away to kindle the flame of war in various places. End quote. So, now whether they want it or not, this is war. Blood has been spilled on both sides, and on the Gothic side, this blood was most likely blue. The Gothic god of honor that was slaughtered on Lupicin's orders as a retaliation for the killing of Roman soldiers was most likely made up, at least partially, of Fritigern and Alavivus liegemen. They were not simply grants, but probably important leaders in their own right within the Tervingi Confederation. Even if I'm wrong and that this guard of honor was entirely composed of rank and file soldiers, they were the guard of honor. This massacre is a slur on the king's honor, and Alavivus and Fritiger were themselves threatened whereas they were under the Roman hospitality. It's too big an insult to be ignored, especially after the slave for food episode. The fact that the Romans let, or rather had to let, Fritiger go instead of keeping him as a hostage is quite telling as well. Maybe the deployment of Roman troops, some of them probably within the town, other outside the walls or even further away, could not allow appropriate defense of their position. Anyhow, at some point, a major mistake was made during this banquet. Either Lupicinus wanted to take the Tervingi leadership as hostages all along, or even have them killed, and should have therefore anticipated the people's reaction and deploy his troops accordingly. Or the Machiavellic plan was never on his mind, and slaughtering the god of honor as a retaliation where his troops are not adequately positioned, was indeed a poor decision. The fighting starts immediately on the following day, and once again, as per our historical sources, Lupicinus makes a fool of himself. So, after all, all my guessing might be wrong. Maybe Valens did pick up a fully incompetent officer to handle such a major crisis. The Goths start to rampage and to plunder the countryside around Marcianopole, and in response... Lupicinus mustered all the men he could put his hands on and advanced his army on the Tervingi camp, 15 kilometers from Marcianopole. Ammianus Marcellinus seems to indicate that the Roman general does not show up just in order to deter the Goths from pursuing the pillaging or to negotiate with them, but to give battle. It's hard to put a solid figure on the forces in presence, but it seems that at best, Lupicinus could count on between 5,000 and 8,000 Romans. The Goths on the end still only comprising the Tervingi, but have had a force ranging from 10,000 to 15,000 men, give or take a few. At any rate, from a strict numerical standpoint, the odds were not in favor of the Romans, but winning on the battlefield was not impossible either. A mere 20 years ago, the Emperor Julian had won a resounding victory over the Alamanni at the Battle of Strasbourg, with similar or worse odds. The Romans had only lost 243 killed, whereas the Germans had lost something like 8,000 men. 
I assume that most history buffs already know that, but the Roman army was indeed a very efficient tool. A professional army that endured for centuries and had a real decisive competitive edge against the barbarians or even the Sassanids. There was a real gap between the Roman army and its opponents in regard to military and fighting capacities. This is not as wide of a gap as in the case of the Europeans against the native populations in the modern era. But even outnumbered, the Romans did stand a pretty good chance to still win. Whether you assassinated army or a German army, attacking Rome meant you had to deal with an enemy who benefited from all the following advantages. Well-built and impressive fortifications, a developed and complex logistical organization which guaranteed a good supply for the army, poor fat base or on campaign, large and well-maintained infrastructures with roads and large arbors which facilitates the movement of troops of the equipments and supply, high-quality weapons, armors, and equipments produced in state factories to ensure standardization. I mean, just take for instance the Lorica Mata, one of the legendary armor of the late empire. Both strong and flexible, it was made of up to 30,000 iron rings, and it is estimated that it took something like two months of non-stop slave labor to produce one of them, which, if well-maintained, and it was easy to maintain, could last for decades. These guys are ready. Most of the state apparatus is built and works just to wage war. And if you add to this organizational masterpiece, the design and training of the army itself, it gets even more impressive. Each army has its legions, that you can subdivide in cohorts, that you can subdivide in centuries and so on and so on. You have specialists, an elite cohort, archer slingers, light infantry, heavy infantry, light cavalry, heavy cavalry, camels, and even artillery. Each Roman legion could deploy 10 heavy ballistae, large pieces, and 59 light scorpions. They fight with the reserves so you can reinforce falling units on the battlefield. They rely on missiles both to disorganize the opposing ranks and make them lose their shields. The legionaries on the front line are changed every few minutes or so in order to keep them fresh. Since the crisis of the 3rd century, the officer corps is made up of professionals whose advancement was merit-based, and not just because one was well-born like it used to be in the Republic and early empire. The soldiers are professionals as well. This is a permanent standing army just like in the movie 300. The generalis, what is your profession? War, war, war. After the fall of the Western Empire, you won't see a professional permanent army in Western Europe before Louis XIV's France in the 17th century. We could go on and on and on and on. The more you look at it, the more it seems we are talking about a modern era army. Perhaps the most telling fact about the degree of efficiency of the Roman armies are the numerous accounts we have of retreating Roman forces or battles which don't go very well for the Romans, but with legionaries who nonetheless hold the line for hours and hours and not only don't break, but inflict heavy casualties to the winning opponents. At any time, and even today, just retreating in good order against an enemy who clearly has the advantage over you is no easy task. But doing so while inflicting staggering casualties is even harder. In the world of antiquity, this is almost exclusive to the Romans. Usually, both armies would clash, one of them would eventually break, and then retire in a more or less disorderly fashion and suffer most of the battle losses. Not the Romans. Or at least... This did not apply most of the time for the Romans. The expression Pyrrhic victory comes from this Roman particularity. A Greek general named Pyrrhus 
defeated the Romans twice, but lost so many men in the process that he considered that one more victory would cause his ruin. In Caesar's Gallic War, we are told that on one occasion, 300 legionaries cut off from the rest of the legion were able on their own to hold off 6,000 Gauls for hours and did not even lose a man. Both examples have just shared constant legions from the time of the Republic. But this is part of the Empire military tradition and savoir-faire, and Julian's victory at the Battle of Strasbourg is a recent event which demonstrates that legionaries of the 4th century were still able to pull off this kind of feat. I know, I am digressing, but I have painted the Goths in such a bright light that I don't want you to think that the Romans are pushovers. Far from it. As a last tribute to the Roman legionaries, and to highlight how much these soldiers were also war-hardened professionals, let me quote Peter Heather from his book The Fall of the Roman Empire. In the following excerpt, he addresses the training in the legion. Keep in mind that he is talking about the Roman army of the late Republic, early empire, and that not everything applies to the legion of the late empire. But still, it's pretty enlightening. Quote, As with all elite military formations, ancient and modern, discipline was ferocious. With no courts of human rights to worry about, instructors were at liberty to beat the disobedient, to death if necessary. And if a whole cohort disobeyed orders, the punishment was decimation. Every tenth man flogged to death in front of his comrades. Well, this practice was very uncommon during the Empire period, for instance. But back to uh, Peter quotes. But you can never base morale on fear exclusively. And group cohesion was also generated by more positive methods. Recruits trained together, fought together, and played together in groups of eight. A contubernium, literally a group sharing a tent. And they were taking young. All armies prefer young men with plenty of testosterone. Legionaries were also denied regular sexual contact. Wives and children might make them think twice about the risk of battle. Basic training was grueling. You had to learn to march 36 kilometers in 5 hours, weighted down with 25 kilos or more of armor and equipment. All the time you were being told how special you were, how special your friends were, what an elite force you belonged to, just like the marines, but much nastier. The result of all of this was groups of super-fit young men, partly brutalized and therefore brutal themselves, closely bonded with one another though denied other strong emotional ties, and taking a triumphant pride in the unit to which they belonged. This was symbolized in the religious oaths sown to the unit standards, the legendary eagles. On successful graduation, the legionary vowed his life and honor to follow the eagles and never desert them, even in death. Such was the determination not to let the standards fall into enemy hands, that one of Cotta's standards bearers, Lucius Petrosidius, hurled his eagle over the rampart at Tongres, as he himself was struck down, rather than let it be captured. The honor of the unit and the bond with fellow soldiers became the most important element in a legionary's life, sustaining a fighting spirit and a willingness to obey orders which few opponents could match. End quote. With his 5,000 to 8,000 Romans against 10,000 to 15,000 Goths, Lupicinus might have been hoping to emulate Julian or might have had, from his own point of view, no other choice. The Gretungi are coming, and once they join the Tervingi, the Romans will have to fight off twice as many people, so it might be better to deal with the Tervingi right now, before they get any reinforcement. Plus, due to the massacre of the God of Honor during the banquet, Fritiger might have lost most of his liegemen and military commanders. Lupicinus might have been expecting the Goths to be disorganized, some of them even absent, busy plundering the surrounding area. 
This might be the reason why, as per Amianus Marcellinus' account, the Roman general seems to rush into battle. He might have estimated that it was now or never, and that, in the short term, he would not have a better shot to put an end to this disaster. Kind of, allowing the Goths to join forces would be catastrophic, so I better finish what I have started. Once again, it all comes down to interpretation. Maybe the guy was indeed an entitled prick who just got the job in the first place because he had the right connections. After all, patronage was a big deal in the Roman world. But I just don't buy it. Just like in the movie Philadelphia with Tom Hanks, I can't help but wonder. Confronted with this most dangerous situation, a large German migration while most of your forces are thousands of kilometers away, who do you put in charge? A reckless, entitled, greedy, dishonest, cocky, stupid green officer? Or an experienced, reliable man who does his best under dire circumstances with the very limited resources available to him? I mean, the Goths are starving and abused? Or it's Lupicin's fault? The banquet goes wrong and starts the war? Yeah, that's totally Lupicin's fault as well. And who's the genius who recklessly attacked the pillaging barbarians and lost all the already depleted forces we had? Yeah, that's so stupid. Lupicinus, why did you do that? What did you expect? Bad, bad Lupicinus. This poor guy just looks like the perfect scapegoat, so we don't have to explain why there were so few men to protect the Balkans. It's not poor judgment on the part of the Emperor Valens. It's Lupicinus' poor mishandling of the situation that caused all the trouble. The Goths showing up on the frontier was God's blessing not a sign that the Almighty deserted the Emperor. It's Lupicinus who turned this benediction into shit. I am not exonerated the general. Mistakes were made. It's just that the story was probably more complicated than it appears to be, and I'd rather put my money on a guy under a lot of stress and pressure whose limited resources and impossible choices pushed him to take regrettable decisions. In the case of the Battle of Marchanople, I understand what might have motivated Lupicinus to engage the Goths. But this was indeed a very dangerous bet, and here is why. At this point in Roman history, the imperial army doctrine is based on the concept of defense and deaths. The plan in a nutshell consists in having two kinds of forces. First, the force on the frontier, called limitanei. They are mostly garrison troops, static troops, with only defensive capabilities. They have neither the means nor the training to launch offensives. They only had two kinds of missions. Mission one is to counter small raids and incursions, either by making it difficult to cross the frontier for small bands or by killing them if they tried. Mission two was to save time and slow down invaders in case of a large invasion. They were not supposed to engage the enemy. They just had to keep their defensive position, forcing their foes to take detours or to suffer from missiles and to continue their march with Roman soldiers in the rear. The frontier force, the Limitane, serve the purpose. They have their usefulness. But they are not, for the most part, neither in design or in training or equipment, battlefield troops. The real troops, the elite force, the guys really in charge of stopping the invaders are the field armies, or comitatenses, the mobile force, which are mainly posted in cities within the interior of the empire. Upon warming from the Limitane, the Roman military gathered the field armies and directed them to the hotspot to meet the invaders and defeat them. For centuries, the Romans had stopped invasions on their frontiers. But from the end of the 3rd century AD onward, this proved impossible. The threats multiplied both in their origins and in numbers, 
and civil wars, as we have seen, became too recurrent. Emperors needed to have some kind of reserve force that could move easily and intervene wherever it was necessary. Prior to the implementation of this new doctrine, in the absence of a central military reserve, a general or an emperor would need to take several detachments from several legions in different garrisons in order to constitute a temporary mobile force and then march it to wherever the invaders were. This was time-consuming and destabilizing, but the new defense in their doctrine offered great perks, but it also had two disadvantages. The most obvious one was that now the Romans accepted that the war would be mostly waged upon their own territory, with all the adverse consequences that this might entail. The second one was that although both professional, the two kinds of forces will not enjoy the same level of quality and fighting capabilities. The frontier forces, the Limitanei, will not be as good as the Comitatenses, especially when it came to fighting on an open battlefield, because they were not supposed to do so. Even if from time to time, when circumstances made it necessary, detachments from the Limitanei would temporarily join the Comitatenses. Well, I think I have repeated it enough times to make you sick of it, but right now, most of Valens field force, most of his comitatenses are in Syria. This means that the army cobbled together by Lupicinus is made either of mainly Limitanei soldiers that he had removed from the frontier garrisons, or mainly comitatense soldiers and that he is therefore commanding the sole remaining field army of the area, or at last a combination of both. So the army Lupicinus is about to engage against war hardened Goths is either composed of soldiers who are not trained, equipped, nor organized to fight in a battle, or is about to put at risk precious elite troops whose destruction would truly leave the Balkans undefended. Neither the Limitane nor the Comitatenses are used to suffer heavy losses. The former because they are supposed to stay and keep defensive positions, which expose them very little, and the latter because they are professional soldiers whose training and equipment requires both a lot of time and resources. They are hard to recruit, expensive to equip, they are not expendable. So you take good care of them. And part of the defense in depth doctrine also contemplated that generals were to avoid pitched battles. The Romans' armies were still superior to their German and Sassanic counterparts. They won most of the recorded battle of the 4th and 5th centuries. But replacing losses is difficult so they tried to minimize casualties as much as possible. It does not mean that they never gave battle and tried to avoid them at all costs, but before resorting to exposing those precious troops, you tried to rely on other tactical options. Night attacks, ambushes, surprise raids, arrestments, and above all, strategic maneuvering. You tried to wear the enemy down and engage your mobile forces for real only once the odds are overwhelmingly in your favor, either because of numerical advantage, strategic position, morale, or a combination of all of them. Well, either out of recklessness or out of fear of what would happen if the Tervingi were not destroyed immediately, Lupicinus considered he could not wait and gave battle either with ill-fitted troops or with precious ones. Here's the account of the battle of Marcianopolis that Amianus Marcianinus gives us. Quote, Lupicinus mustered his forces to meet them in tumultuous haste and advanced with more temerity than discretion nine miles from the city, where he halted ready to give battle. When they saw him, the barbarians hurled themselves recklessly on our lines, dashing their shields upon the bodies of the opponents and running them through with spears and swords. In this furious and bloody assault, our stones were snatched from us, and our tribunes, 
those are senior officers, and our tribunes and the greater part of our men perished, all but the luckless commander, he's talking about Lupicinus, all but the luckless commander. While others were fighting, his one aim was to get away, and he made for the city at a gallop. After this, the enemies armed themselves with Roman weapons, and Rome at large resisted. End quote. No matter the time period or the army, when you read that all the senior officers of an army were killed, you can bet that it was a rout. Tribunes are senior officers, right below the rank of legate, the general. So these are not just sergeants and lieutenants who died, but commanders, majors, colonels. If these men were comitatenses, this is a disaster, but at any rate, even if only made of limitane troops, this army was all the force Lupicinus could muster. So the emperor just lost all military response capability in the Balkans, and the Goths are literally free to do almost anything they want. And oh boy, will they take advantage of this new freedom. The Gretungi finally joined the Tervingi, and besides settling scores with the Romans, after all the humiliation they had to go through, the first order of business is to secure food. So they leave Marcianopol and start plundering the whole of Thrace, focusing on the countryside because walled towns and cities remain out of their reach. On top of the merging of both Tervingi and Gretungi confederations, they also gather people along their rampage, either by force or because they offer disenchanted people, slaves, bandits, oppressed peasants and so on, a great opportunity to take revenge on their Roman oppressors. Another small group of Goths who had been part of the Roman army also joined them after the citizen of the city where they were posted hosted them upon hearing of the revolt of the Tervingi. The Gothic army and its population are therefore getting bigger and bigger, and it's payback time. Do not picture this hunt for food only as a merciless requisition. These Germans have been fighting off the Huns and Romans for years. They have been forced to leave their homeland, deprived of food, disrespected, and asked to sell their own children in exchange for food. Saying that they are pissed off is an understatement. Quote, the Goths advancing cautiously spread over every quarter of Thrace, while their prisoners, or those who surrendered to them, pointed out the rich villages, especially those in which it was said that abundant supplies of food were to be found. With such guides, nothing that was not inaccessible and out of the way remained untouched, for without distinction of age or sex, all places were ablaze with slaughter and great fires. Babies were turned from the very breasts of their mothers and slain. Matrons and widows, whose husbands had been killed before their eyes, were carried off. Boys of tender age or adult were dragged away over the dead bodies of their parents. Many older men, lamenting that they had lived long enough after losing their possession and the beautiful women, were led to exile with their arms pioneered behind their backs, weeping over the glowing ashes of their ancestral homes. End quote. Remember, most of the food supply had been stored within walled city by Roman authorities in 376, and with so many people to feed, they really needed to turn every stone in order to plunder everything which was within their reach until the new crops of 377 would be available to steal. When they showed up in your village looking for whatever food you had stored for the winter, you better be quick to provide the right answers or else. And all those Roman civilians attacked by the Goths are really powerless because only the Roman soldiers were allowed to carry weapons. Not that it would have made much of a difference anyway. At this time in Roman development, the Balkans at large, but Thrace in particular, were prosperous provinces within the empire. Thrace was basically the backyard of Constantinople, one of the imperial capitals, 
and the Eastern Empire capital. Its wealth spilled over the countryside, and the Goths had plenty of aristocrats' villas and land to plunder. The fact that much of Constantinople elite's assets were suffering from the Goths' rampage made the crisis all the more pressing for Valencia in 377. So he sends a general to get whatever peace deal he can get from the Sassanid Empire, and dispatches a significant military force from Armenia to reinforce the Balkans, stalling for time. By significant, I mean that it was powerful enough for the Goths to take them into account, but we're still not talking about an overwhelming might which could allow the emperor to subdue the Germans or force them to sue for peace. Valens' request for assistance from the Western Empire also started to pay off for a minor detachment also arrived from the West to join the force sent by Valens. This new strategic deal pushed the Gulf to move north of the Balkans, in some kind of rectangle bordered by the Danube River in the north, and roughly by mountains all over the other directions. Either because an opportunity opened, or because they considered that they now had enough men to dance with the Germans, or under pressure from the emperor and the elite in Constantinople, the Roman commanders decided to give battle. At least on this occasion, this was not a rout. But the confrontation seems to have ended in a bloody duel for both sides. The account of this battle by Amianus Marcellinus, who I remind you served in the Roman army until the 60s, gives us a glimpse of what kind of violence these battles could entail, but also reveals that although himself a veteran, he was also shocked to some degree by the violence displayed on the battlefield on this occasion, perhaps thus hitting that the clash was particularly hateful. Again, this is my own interpretation, but at this stage, it's payback time for both sides. Imagine how marines would handle enemies who have laid waste to the area around Washington DC for months. Quote, the whole field was strewn with corpses, among whom were some only half-dead who still nursed a futile hope of survival. A number had fallen by slingshot or had been transfixed by shafts tipped with metal. In some cases, the head had been split in two by a sword stroke through the crown and forehead and hung down on both shoulders, a most gruesome sight. End quote. The battle seems to stun the Goths for a while because we are told that they stay inside the giant wagon cycle for a week after the battle. The breathing space offered to the Romans by this stalemate allows them to set in motion a new starving strategy. It's the autumn of 377, so they decide to block all the passes of the mountains surrounding the area, thus imposing a blockade on the Goths in the hope to starve them to death or to surrender. The area where they are gathered cannot sustain that many people during the winter, so they now have to either force the passes which will prove most difficult for the geography will deprive them of their numerical advantage. Or they must cross the Danube River, with an enemy in their rear and Roman naval forces in their front. The last option is to go east, towards Marcianopole again, which is in the plain, but where stationed most of the Roman forces. They could repeat the victory of Olopicinus, but given their strategic position, Marcianopole is now the neck of the bottle they are trapped in. It could also prove difficult or costly to break through this entrenched position. This time, the Romans only need to repulse them to keep them trapped. No need for a smashing victory. But the Goths are resourceful people, and they are not far from the imperial frontier. So they send scouts and emissaries up north, being the frontier, in Germanicum, and manage to recruit a mixed force of Alans and Huns to reinforce them and tip the scale in their favor. Upon receiving reports of this new strategic reversal, the Romans evacuate the passes and the cork of the bottle 
in order to regroup and avoid to have isolated forces annihilated one by one. Once again, the Goths get the upper hand. They escape from this blockade and are free to plunder a raider area. And just for good measure, during the Roman retreat, they even manage to wipe out an entire Roman detachment caught by surprise. Keep in mind that we're not talking about the Red Army or the Vermont, or some kind of Mongol horde. These guys were able to pull this off while marching along with their wives, their children, and the elderly. I mean, damn. I know the Romans are under man, but still, what a show. If we make a quick summary in just a few years, these Germans have... First, they resisted violent and relentless attacks from the Huns, who will eventually end up conquering most of barbaricum Europe and deal on equal footing with the Roman Empire. And in the process, the Goths lost two kings. Then, they astutely took advantage of intelligence reports about the Empire's strategic deployment to get entrance from a very strong bargaining position. They also endured privation, starvation, blackmail, endless humiliation, while keeping the cool until it was no longer politically possible to avert war. And at last, they have crushed, fought off, and evade one of the most efficient professional army of all times, while inflicting serious casualties. And they managed to accomplish all of this while maintaining their political unity and protecting their population. Can you imagine being part of this odyssey? I can't even fathom the character and the social spirits this kind of ongoing rising challenges demand in order to overcome them. They seem to always face higher and higher stakes along the road and always rise to the occasion. In his series on World War I, Dan Carling in Hardcore History quotes a soldier who tries to explain what it was like to experience a heavy bombardment. He said it was like being tied up to a post and having someone repeatedly throwing a hammer at your face. Well, if you take the time to put yourself in these Germans' footsteps, it sure feels they were this man tied up to a post, spitting in the face of fate and avoiding over and over again each new hammer hurled in his direction. What a story, and, and trust me, they're just getting started. I will not elaborate further about the new destruction they inflict on the countryside and its inhabitants. The last fragment from Armianus Marcinus was explicit enough. Suffice it to say that even today, archaeological records show the extent of the damage and most late Roman villas of the area were destroyed, never to be rebuilt. So we can assume that the rich elite was quite upset with the situation, to put it mildly, and they make sure to convey their opinion to Valens. Upon his arrival in Constantinople on May 30, 378 AD, riots erupt in the capital just to make sure the emperor was well aware how much the Romans truly bought into his imperial propaganda. I previously detailed how shaky Valens' imperial legitimacy was at the dawn of his reign. Constantinople had even sided with the usurper Procopius, but we saw that he was eventually able to put down the rebellion and repulse the Goth in the late 60s, proving himself in the process as both a legitimate and able emperor. Well, this new crisis was turning the tables once again. His reputation was basically in the gutter. I mean, try to think like a very rich aristocrat from Constantinople for a minute. And we saw in the first part of the show that those guys are the real people who matter. They are the citizens who actually pay taxes to finance the state apparatus and the army. To some extent, Valence is accountable to them. Let's assume I am a filthy, rich patrician from Constantinople. I never liked Valence in the first place, and the only reason I was fine with the usurper Procopius' fall was that it meant there would not be any prolonged bloody civil war. But I really can't stand his cuts 
this parvenu who only became emperor because his brother said so, who dares to portray himself as some kind of divine figure to whom I must bow, whereas before his accession to the throne, he would have been paying his respect to me. And he's the one to blame for the burning of my estates, he's the one to blame for all my financial losses over the last year. While he was enjoying the sun in Antioch, I had to flee from my own villa in panic, humiliated in front of my own slaves, to find refuge in Constantinople, where I had to remain stuck and powerless while all my lands were plundered by this beast that he let enter within the empire with all their weapons. A blessing from God, according to him. What a blessing! Those are the same barbarians, by the way, that he was supposed to have beaten ten years ago to teach them a lesson about the consequences of invading our lands. What a teacher. And what a commander-in-chief. He basically deprived our lands from any military protection in order to launch his prestige operations against the Sassanids and all the whole Balkans belong to the Goths, and he had to purchase peace in the east with further concessions to the Sassanids. So prestige my ass. He has managed to lose on two thrones without even showing up on either one. I'm glad my taxes go to this guy. Anyway, just out of curiosity, in case of a major slave revolt, is he also the guy in charge? So yeah, it's basically back to square one for Valence. He needs a clear-cut victory, not only to restore the Empire's security, but also to salvage his throne. The main and almost only job of a Roman Emperor is to protect the Empire and its landowners. So, so far, he appears to have done quite a poor job. So why should he keep his title? Former rulers have been overthrown for far less. The pressure is mounting on him to prove he still has God's blessing. 378 must produce a major victory so nothing has been left to chance. His diplomacy with the Western Empire has borne fruit, and the Western Emperor is also sending his failed army to the Balkans, so that both the Roman Emperors might join all the military might to crush the Goths for good. With both Roman mobile forces, the Emperors will be able to gather twice or maybe thrice the numbers the Germans may feel for a fight. With that many men at their disposal, the battle might even be avoided. It is one thing to crush garnison troops and to repulse professional field soldiers with some numerical advantage on your end. It is an entire different proposition to stand your ground, let alone win, against the two main field armies of both empires with a major numerical disadvantage. With between 40,000 to 60,000 fighting men, just imagine how much artillery the Romans will be able to deploy, how many arrows, spears, missiles, slingshots and rocks will rain on the Goths. The Light Empire military doctrine meant to save soldiers, so the army also relied much more on projectiles than it used to during the early days of the Empire. Plus, with that many men and cavalry, strategic and tactical maneuvering will also be far easier for the Romans and allow them to corner the barbarians in the worst possible position. The Emperors might just need to show up and display the military might for the Goths to agree to some deal which would put an end to their political unity but save their lives. This happened on several occasions during the Empire history. Of course, that's providing the Romans do coordinate and that the Goths are not able to defeat one imperial field army after the other. Yet as we saw, Valence has a great deal to prove and might be more than tempted to beat the Goths on his own, just to make sure he gets all the glory. What would people say if he happened to be saved once again by his brother? Damn Valence, can't you be your own man? Except this would be even worse than that because the Western Emperor is no longer his brother, the man who made him emperor in the East. 
Now, his brother Valentinian I died in 375 from a stroke after a fit of rage against German diplomats who were not subservient enough for his liking. Yes, this is the kind of man we are dealing with. And just for the fun, let me share the following one with you. The day before his death, Valentinian could not mount a horse that had been brought to him. The animal would not let him climb. It was rearing and moving around, so charming Valentinian ordered the groom, a teenager that he used as a stool to mount the horse, he ordered the groom to have his hands cut off. Pretty cool, right? The sentence was not carried out because an officer intervened and the emperor died before he could insist. But you know, egomaniacs will be egomaniacs. So Valen's delightful brother was dead. And now the man reigning in the west was Valen's nephew, Gratian, a 19-year-old boy. How does it feel to be 50, to make a fool of yourself, and to end up being rescued by a teenager? Trust me, that's going to be a major boost to your prestige, man. But wait, there's more. This gets even better. Because Valen's brother, Valentinian, already overshadowed the Eastern Emperor with major victories against the barbarians in the West, and with a great military aura. Well, the apple did not fall very far from the tree with his son. On his way to the Balkans, Gratian is informed that a German invasion by a branch of the Alamanni Confederation is taking place on the Rhine. The barbarians had noticed that its defense was growing weaker on the Roman side, and the observation was confirmed by a Roman imperial guard of German origins who had returned home for personal business and who had been a little bit too talkative. He had informed them that the Western Emperor was leaving with his army to assist Valence in the East. The initial probing attacks on the Rhine had been repulsed, but more were coming. So Gratian had to turn back to deal with the Alamanni. And this war with the Alamanni in the West puts Valence in a very, very tight spot, politically speaking. First because Gratian, his 19-year-old nephew, basically crushes the Alamanni. Or so at least was it advertised. He did not just stop a raid. He defeated a 40,000 Germans invasion in the making, according to Amianus Marcellinus, who even alights the fact that others put their number at 70,000 to magnify the young emperor's triumph. So at 19, Gratian was already covered with more military glory than his 50-years-old uncle, whose current prestige is at his lowest. But this war also means that Gratian will be late. So now either Valens plays it safe and wait for Gratian, or he tries to wing on his own with half as many men as both empires could muster. Of course, the logical the sound course of action would be to wait for Gratian. But think about the kind of disastrous PR this would entail for Valence. Imagine these events taking place in 2020 and the Emperor's spokesman's challenge to sell this strategy. Sir, please sir, Marcellus from the Constantinople Chronicles. Now that the field army has arrived, do you know when the Emperor will be attacking? Do you have an ETA as to the resolution of the ongoing crisis? Um, no, no ETA for the time being. The Eastern Field Army will be waiting on the Emperor Gratian to join us. And although he's on the move, we do not have a precise date regarding the completion of our joint military response. Sir, please, sir, don't you have at least a rough estimate? Well, I assume we are talking months. Yeah, most likely in the coming months. But sir, this means that, in the meantime, the barbarian scum will keep on murdering and raping Roman citizens and freeing slaves destroying and plundering their properties, aren't you going to do something to protect them? Well, our thoughts and prayers go to them and may God the merciful protect them. Sir, Titus from the Marchionable Time, doesn't the Eastern Field Army already benefit from a decisive numerical advantage against the Goths? 
Um, yes, it does. We indeed have more men, probably 10,000 more men than the Germans. That is correct. Well then, sir, why isn't the Emperor Valence using this field army to crush the invaders? The citizens of the Balkans have been waiting for months for our legions to put an end to the massacres. It is very hard for them to understand why our men should remain idle now that they are here. Well, it is the expert opinion of the Emperor and of his military chiefs that a joint military response with the Western Empire would guarantee a safer outcome. Sir, the Western Emperor Gratian has just defeated over 70,000 Alemanni on their own territory with a similar field army. Are you implying that our Emperor Valens would not be able to secure this kind of victory against a smaller German army operating on our lands? No, not at all. I- I'm not implying such a thing. I'm-, I'm just highlighting that we do not want to leave anything to chance and that a joint military response offer better odds. Sir, it does offer better odds for the Eastern Field Army, but not for the citizens of the Eastern Empire, if I may say. The Western Emperor could travel much faster on his own by sea than if he was moving with his army and he could lead the Eastern Legions to victory as he just did in Germany. Has the Eastern Imperial Court considered the possibility for the Western Emperor Gratian to take command of the Eastern Field Army on behalf of his uncle Valence? No, this option is definitely not on the table. Each emperor has to be in command of his own respective half of the empire. This is a tenet of the imperial policy and must remain so for the greater good of the empire. Sir, how does it feel to be the imperial spokesman in these difficult times? Well, this is an honor and I'm... I am most grateful to his majesty to, for his kindness, or, although this position is far above my humble station and that I have therefore asked to resign, his highness has confirmed me in my post and promised that I will not have my tongue cut off despite my foolish request. Although I guess I shouldn't have shared that with you. Well, if you do not have further questions, I think we can call it a day. Oh, you, you do have further questions. Yeah, of course, I bet you do. Even putting ego aside, it was kind of hard politically speaking for Valence to wait for his teenage nephew to secure the day. When he received a letter confirming that Gratian was coming and detailing his victory over the Alemanni, Valence's army had been camping for almost two months already. So when some intelligence report informs the Emperor that an army of Goths of only 10,000 warriors is approaching Adrianople, which is in modern-day Adrian in European Turkey, almost on the Greek northern frontier, the opportunity is too good to pass. Between the Tervingi, the Gretungi, the slaves, the other Goths that had joined them after Marcianopole, and the Alans and Hunt reinforcements, Valence was expecting to face a much bigger army. If their force was divided, this was the right time to strike, especially on his own. Estimations vary, but the Eastern Field Army probably amounted to 20,000 or 30,000 men, thus granting him at least twice as many men or thrice as many men as the Goths, and not any men. A large number among them are veterans, and a former commander-in-chief of seemingly good reputation, a certain Trajan, is also part of the officers. Valence has a very fine tool to use. After a council of war with both options are discussed, waiting for Gratian or moving on to the Gothic army, the emperor chooses to march against the enemy and he reaches Adrianople quickly where he establishes a fortified camp. At this stage, and why Valence has the Goths right there, ready to be crushed. The commander of the Western Emperor's personal troops arrives to deliver a letter to the Eastern Emperor, confirming that Gratia is about to arrive. It's probably just a question of days, a week at most. His 19-year-old nephew makes a plea for his uncle to wait for him, 
and to not engage in a rush action. This message must have rattled a few cages. Valence then musters the new council of war to once again debate whether they must attack or wait for his dear nephew. Both options are once again contemplated, although it appears that most men participating in the meeting favoured waiting for Gratian. The master of cavalry, or commander-in-chief of the Roman cavalry, who is not even Roman, is a Samarthian, an Iranian-speaking barbarian. He seems to be the main advocate for a joint military response. But Valens just cannot resist the perspective of an easy victory, already advertised by the flattery of some of the people of his imperial court. It is just too tempting to pass. Whether for his ego or to salvage his political capital or both, he insists on crushing the Goths without the help of the Western Emperor. And he gets more and more signs that the Goths are indeed in dire straits. The very night before the battle, Fritigr, the leader of the Goths, you know, the guy who survived Lopichin's banquet, well, Fritigr sends a Christian priest to Valence to renew the German request for a right to settle down on Roman lands, in Thrace, for instance, in exchange for perpetual peace. But along with this official message, the priest also brings to the Eastern Emperor a secret letter in which Fritigr basically explains to Valence that he wants to avoid war and possibly agree to a treaty favorable to the Romans, but he needs his help to calm down his Gothic troops. He wants to become Valence's friend and associate and put all this madness behind them. But in order to do so, he needs the emperor to make a show of force, to display the Romans' military might to his followers, so he might reason with them with something along the lines of, I'm sorry guys, but we need to surrender, or at the very least to negotiate. Can't you see what we are dealing with? This is the main and fully operational imperial army. We do not stand a chance. The Gothic king is basically asking Valens to hold his horses and to not crush his people. I know that you are much stronger than we are. Just show them, because my word will not be enough. Show them so we can avoid a useless massacre. This is not the kind of message you share when you're in a position of strength, and this probably gives Valence all the more reason to believe in an easy victory, and that the intelligent reports he had were accurate. The emperor turns down the proposal, according to Amianus Martinus, on the ground that the priest cannot be trusted which might mean that Valence wanted more guarantees or someone with a higher rank or a more concrete proposal. At any rate, other diplomatic envoys are sent by the Goths the following day while the Roman army is deploying for battle, also to ask for peace, and they are once again turned away because the emperor demands to negotiate with the leaders. Valence is now sure of his hand. He knows the Goths are in a weak position. Fritiger knows it himself and acknowledges it, so it's kind of now you either come to me yourself and surrender, or I'll crush the shit out of you. He can't just accept an approval of a dead eater with some commoner. He wants the kings to show up and bow. But why would the emperor even bother, you ask? Well, and once again, personal interpretation here, so warning. But when you think about it, would you pay for something if you can get it for free? Yes, Valence wants to be the sole victor. He wants all the glory for himself. But his generals are also here, and the main military doctrine of the time remains. You want to preserve the comitatenses. There's no need to suffer casualties against the foe who has been cornered if they are willing to surrender their arms and agree to your terms. Plus, think about the PR once again. After months of rampage of the Goths and of the defeats of the Roman arms, the sole knowledge of the presence of His Majesty Valence filled the heart of those barbarians with fear and despair and was enough to convince them to surrender. 
glory, glory to our dear emperor, may God bless him, and so on and so on. I mean, this is the kind of Roma victor that anyone dreams of. At last, there's no hurry. The Scots reported that there are only 10,000 Germans. They have divided themselves. We can wait a few hours. And that's fine by Fretiger. He precisely wants Valence to both feel confident and make diplomatic demands because the Gothic king is indeed in a thorny situation. As a matter of fact, he was caught a little bit off guard and some of his men are indeed missing, especially his cavalry. But they're coming back, even though they're not there yet. So he's turning for time and anything will do. Hey friend, what about you deploy your army and just do nothing? You just ask your soldier to stand there and show how fierce and strong they are so I can talk to my men for a few hours and calm them down. No, you're not buying it? What about... Now I'm ready for peace and here's my thief cousin to strike the deal. He comes along with his uncle who is also his father. Oh, you want someone from a higher rank? Well, let me see what I can find. Well, here's my nephew. I've been told that you like nephews. Will that do? Or you want me to come over? Okay, I'm I'm ready to roll, but we need hostages. Will you send hostages to my camp to guarantee my security? Oh yeah, no problem. I'll let you chuck it over with your generals. Take all the time you need. In the meantime, I'll just start a big barbecue so we can feast and celebrate our future peace agreement. In the meantime, the Gothic cavalry was coming back and the Roman soldiers were literally baking under the summer sun. Remember, this is August the 9th, 378 AD. The temperature was probably about 30 degrees Celsius. And I'm half joking about Philitica's barbecue. The Goths do indeed light fires whose smoke and heat are pushed towards the Roman lines by the wind. On top of that, in his haste to reach a conclusion, Valens had moved his legions from the camp nearby Adrianople to the battlefield with neither rest nor food, through an eight hours march. After that, you might be part of an elite professional troop, nonetheless. You're still tired, hungry, sweating under the weight of your armor, thirsty under the scorching sun of August, and all those stinky Germans are sending you smoke and further heat when the brass are dancing around and contemplating discussing with those beasts. You're not precisely in a very favorable mood or situation to engage in battle, but you might be impatient to finish it as soon as possible precisely because you are fed up. Well, at one point, two regiments on the Roman right wing decide that it's enough. Right when a Roman high-ranking official was going to the Gothic line to serve as a hostage, and they engaged the enemy, thus kicking off the clash of arms. At this point, the legions still have the numerical advantage. The Romans have deployed a mix of cavalry and infantry on each of the wings, and filled the center with the heavy infantry. The Goths on the end have deployed their lines right in front of the wagons, that they have turned into a fortified cycle on which they can retreat. And they did well because despite the men's fatigue, the Romans take advantage immediately. Following the initial exchange of missiles, arrows, and other projectiles, both enemy lines rush against each other and clash. In the ensuing thrusting and tossing of the ranks, the Roman left wing pushes forward and forces the Goths' opposite wing to retreat to their wagons, that the legionaries are about to storm. This is where the German families are, the women, the children, the old people. If the Romans can break through the cycle of wagons, they will cause mayhem and probably be able to turn back and attack the Gothic center by the rear. At this point, the professional soldiers might even be dealing with women, children and old men, throwing whatever projectile available to them while the German men try to repulse the Roman from the wagons. Just a few more steps separate some of the fighters from total revenge 
and others from utter massacre and despicable slavery. But in this moment of fate, the Goths, from the height of the wagons, have a magnificent view to draw hope from. More or less right at the same time as the Roman left wing is smashing their ranks, the Germans and Allen's cavalry arrive at last, and decisively charge the imperial left flank, the very same one which is currently securing victory for Valence. The barbarian's tactical surprise is complete, and generates so much confusion that the Roman's left-wing cavalry is dispersed, depriving the left-wing infantry from support. Struck both by the German cavalry and the wagon infantry line, the imperial left-wing is destroyed and the Goths then press their advantage against the heavy infantry in the center of the Roman lines. Flanked, virtually surrendered, the legionaries stand their ground nonetheless, tightly squeezed against one another by the mass of the enemy. They lose all maneuverability and can barely use their swords, let alone their spears. An orderly retreat has become impossible, and even offering a cohesive defense becomes more and more difficult. With solid space around them, even after striking the Goths with their swords, it proves often impossible for the legionaries to withdraw their arm to defend themselves or strike again. Clouds of dust and smoke are covering the battlefield, making it hard to block projectiles or to even know for sure who one is fighting. Many legionaries are killed or wounded by other Romans, a sort of death by friendly strike, if you want. It comes to a point where you are just here to suffocate under the pressure of the crowd, or to wait to be stabbed or run through, powerless to avoid the shredding of your flesh. We cannot know for certain, but, and this is a tribute to the professionalism, it seems that, as per the account we have of the battle, the legionaries' ranks resist for quite a long time, many hours, actually. Although at this point, I really wonder if you can still feel thirst or hunger with so much adrenaline running in your blood. They are enveloped and stuck in a desperate situation, and they still manage to stand the ground. But even today, no army in the world can survive, let alone prevail, after the loss of one wing and having its troops surrounded and caught between enemy lines. So, the legions eventually break, and the worst that can happen, does happen. The Romans run for it and offers their back to the Goths. This is tantamount to losing your gun in a gunfight. As soon as an army loses its cohesion and discipline, not only can it no longer defend itself properly, but it does no longer represent any threat to the enemy. The Germans, and especially the cavalry and Allen allies, can dash onto the legionaries and kill them one after the other, as a mad serial killer in a slasher would pick up one by one innocent, mindless teenagers lost in some isolated countries I'd mentioned. The Roman Eastern Phil army is doomed. The outcome is catastrophic. Two-thirds of the army are annihilated, so between 13,000 and 20,000 men dead. 35 officers of tribune ranks are killed. These are the equivalent of our colonels and brigadier generals. And remember, most of the ranks in file were veterans. The Empire has not only lost precious manpower, but precious experienced manpower. We know through a listing of the Eastern Army established 20 years later that 16 elite regiments lost so many men that the Empire just gave up and never reconstituted them. Keep in mind that this is centuries before the French Lovermas doctrine and the rise of modern states' war resilience. Filling the vacant ranks will be very, very hard for the Empire. The Romans did not only lose an army, but also the tools, tradition and expertise to raise and train a new one. And just for good measure, Valence was also killed during the battle. 
so there's no more head of state either. He was either killed anonymously on the battlefield or burnt alive in a farmhouse where he had been carried to after being injured. His corpse was never found. And that tells you all you need to know about the battle, right? Just to have a proper understanding of what has been lost here, we should ask ourselves how important are these casualties in comparison with what might have been the total force available in the Eastern Empire. Well, let's assume that the total military force of the United Roman Empire was around 400,000 men. It might have been higher, some say as high as 500,000 soldiers, but let's roll with a round figure of 400,000. Let's divide it neatly between the eastern part and the western part, respectively granting them 200,000 men. So Valence had had at his disposal 200,000 soldiers. But remember, there is a distinction in the army between the Limitanei and the Comitatenses. We know that the Limitanei, the static frontier troops, amounted to over half of the total manpower available in the army. But let's be nice and just assume that they amounted to only 110,000 soldiers. This leaves a nice field army of 90,000 men. But then, the Eastern Empire is itself divided between two main fronts. One in the Middle East, against the Sassanid Empire, and one in the Balkans, along the Danube. So we must once again divide this nice field army of 90,000 soldiers, and let's assume that Valence once again neatly cut it in half and had 45,000 men mustered in the Balkans. At last, out of these 45,000, you still need to detach some legions to guard numerous key strategic positions, cities, mountain passes, inland strongholds, fortresses, and so on and so on. The Balkans are almost as big as a country like modern-day Spain, so it's not far-fetched to assume that once all the military manpower available to Valence had been soundly distributed, he could only fill at best 25 to 30,000 men. The loss of two-thirds of this field army basically means that the Eastern Empire has fully lost battlefield capacity on one of his main fronts. Even today, among all the countries whose defense is based solely on a professional army, where there is no annual draft, like France, for instance, very few countries could recover from such an ordeal. Even countries relying on conscription would take this hit as a critical blow. Only three countries could really overcome this kind of defeat. Russia and China, of course. I think there are enough historical evidence of this. And the United States, providing its public opinion could accept the cost in human life, of course. And there are several reasons why these three countries could still stand after this kind of rot. But the two main ones, in my opinion, are the same as the ones which apply to the Roman Empire to some extent. First, they have a huge territory to fall back to. They have a deep strategic battlefield. Consider countries like Germany, Spain or France. All it takes is one successful breakthrough and it is basically game over. You don't have to conquer thousands over thousands of kilometers to knock them out. Once Sedan one fell Tannenberg and you're at the mercy of your foe. And in the case of Germany, it's even worse. France has some planes in the north, but at least it can rely on mountains and the sea to cover most of its fronts. But Germany is surrounded by other countries and can only count mainly on rivers. These countries are like the Goths. They are fighting every battle with their back against the wall. But not Rome. Not Rome. The Tervingian Gretungi 
might have achieved a huge victory. But to some extent, it is an empty victory. Just like Napoleon after the Battle of the Moscova and the conquest of Moscow. Congratulations. You have won yet another battle. By the way, you still don't control most of the country, and Moscow is not even our capital. It's St. Petersburg. Nice plan, genius. And no, the taking of one city will not shatter our empire and push ourselves to revolt. Most of them are not even aware that you have taken Moscow. And we actually care so little about it that we will even set it on fire. So enjoy your glory and burn with it. Burn, baby, burn. All that the Goths have achieved, once again, is to survive, which is basically what they have been doing for almost a decade now. For them, Adrianople is both a decisive battle and a pointless one. They still can storm any Roman city, they are still looking for a safe and stable area where to settle, they still did not reach a compromise with the Roman authorities, and the leader Fritigern will never be able to obtain any favorable diplomatic treaty, or at least, none which will allow him to keep his head on his shoulders. There is no way the Romans will agree to a compromise or peace with him, now that he has destroyed an imperial field army and killed an emperor in the process. The empire remains intact and so vast that they cannot hope to conquer it. The second reason why Rome and Russia and China and the USA can survive this kind of defeat is demographic. They have huge populations, so they can trade human lives for time. France and Germany could and can rely on important populations, but not on the same scale, and above all when you combine a huge demographic pool with a vast territory. Well, this makes an easy and fast conquest almost impossible. China and the USSR respectively lost 20 and 25 million people during World War II. 20 and 25 million! Even with populations of hundreds of millions of people, these figures are just astonishing. Granted, I'm also including civilian losses, but, but for the Russians, over the 1,416 days that the Great Patriotic War lasted, this makes an average of 17,655 deaths per day. This means that they had total Americans Vietnam War deaths almost every three days. Yet, they somehow managed to survive the war. Rome cannot suffer these kind of casualties, of course. The scale was different back then. But its demography can allow the empire to survive Adrianople. But as I said previously, to reconstitute the Eastern Field Army will prove difficult. Not because of a lack of men. We do not have an accurate figure, but the total population of the empire was probably well over 70 million people. So there are men available. It's just that they are mostly not available for the army. First, there is the labor distribution issue. Contrary to what some people think, by the end of the 4th century, Rome was not a decadent empire on the brink of internal collapse. Archaeological finds prove that both in the East and West, the agricultural yields were pretty good. Over the centuries of its existence, Rome had developed and valorized its conquests, so it now has a lot of arable lands to maintain and cultivate. And this work required a great many, many men, if possible strong and young. You cannot just deprive the countryside of this manpower not only because you will piss off a lot of rich landowners, but also because you do have a huge population to feed. You need those crops and those yields. Secondly, 
who really wants to be a legionary nowadays? This is no longer the time of the early republic when the citizens took arms for the very survival of a tiny Rome and the defense of their property, or the high days of the late republic and early empire when you could make a fortune in slaves and get a nice retirement bonus or even become a citizen. Now everybody is a citizen. And all the areas are well developed. You can enjoy a safe and stable life. Why would I risk that for a warrior's lives? Plus, most barbarians are happy and willing to serve in the Roman army. Let them, so they might kill their brothers from the other side of the Rhine. No matter who dies, we win. If I join, I will have to live under very strict rules while being exposed to hardships, diseases, horrendous injuries. I, I, I might end up forced to kill other Romans in a civil war or end up as a prisoner and slave to the Germans or the Sassanids. And even if I somehow make it all right, if I ever have a son, he will be forced, by law, to serve in the Roman army as well. Not only will I get a shitty life, but by signing up, I am making sure all my descendants will. So no, volunteers were not showing up in mass. The challenge for the man who will take over after Valence is not only to handle rampaging Goths and the loose in the Balkans, but to constitute an army with limited options at its disposal. And this man will not be Gratian, by the way. Upon hearing the news, the Western Emperor probably both rolled his eyes and buried his head in his hands while cursing his dear uncle, but he does not want to be the sole emperor of a united empire. It is usually already too big of a job for one man, and the crisis in the Balkans will require the full attention and time of the future emperor. So he has to name a successor to Valence. And so, after careful consideration, he decides to appoint Lupicinus as the new emperor. Nah, I'm kidding, of course. Given the discredit of the eastern generals following this string of defeats, Gratian picks up a man from the west, a Spaniard named Theodosius. He is a military man from Spain and comes from a military family. He and his father had crushed usurpers, rebels, and barbarians in Brittany, Gaul, the Balkans, and Africa. They defeated Franks, Saxons, Scots, Alamanni, Sarmathians, Quaidi, you name it. In short, he's the real deal. He's the kind of man you want to take over in the middle of a military crisis. Plus, it is actually supposed to be his destiny. Funny anecdote here, which will also allow us to illustrate again how insecure Valence was. In the early 70s, Valence had persecuted people for sorcery in Antioch. Under torture, the accused had confessed having practiced divination in order to discover the name of Valens' future successor. Of course, the reigning emperor had those glorified sorcerers executed. But he also killed those who had had the bad luck of just hearing the name that had been revealed by this dark practice. When you read Amianus Marcellinus' account, you just can't believe it. For a moment I just thought, nah, this is crazy. I must have misread this. Those bozos could not have been taken so seriously as to cause trials and their own executions just for playing with the Ouija board to find out who would be the next emperor. And you could not possibly be dragged into it just because you knew those guys. But no, it's true. Well, according to Amianus, but uh, he's a reliable source. This is the kind of Soviet fairy tale 
which brings the point home that this is not only another time period, but almost another planet. But anyway, the funny part of this story is that the partial name which came up during those uh, Ouija sessions was Theod, T-H-E-O-D, Theod. Like in a lot of names in the time, such as Theodorus, who ended up killed for having the wrong name at the wrong time. But also like Theodosius, who would indeed eventually succeed Valence. What a nice prophecy. But back to our story. The fact that Theodosius and his father had had such military careers immediately sends a message as to the official imperial policy. We do not negotiate with terrorists. The Romans still want to impose a real receptio, within the frame of a clear and unquestionable dedito, or surrender. They want the Goths to bow and to follow Rome's policy to the letter. They will give up their weapons, some of the young men will be drafted in the Roman army, and all the other men, women and children will be scattered around the empire and distributed as unfree peasants. So the victory at Adrianople did not even allow the Goths to bring the Romans to the negotiating table. Fritiger was probably stalling for time when he tried to negotiate with Valence, but not only. All German hopes do rest on the conclusion of some kind of deal with Rome. They cannot conquer the empire, and they cannot accept the dedito. Especially after Adrianople, the gods know what the Romans would actually do to them if they were to surrender. So they need this compromise. But Gratian and the Roman elite don't want to hear about it. So Theodosius' job will be to make sure Roman's arms eventually prevail. He is not appointed directly, but rather six months after Valens' death. Gratian first gives him the military command of the Balkans area and let him flex his muscle to evaluate how this new man handles the crisis. His first priority is to do as much damage control as possible with the limited military resources at his disposal without exposing them nonetheless. His second priority is to reconstitute a field army. So where can he get new men? Well, they are volunteers first, but, as we said, they will not run to him in mass. Then he can recall retired veterans, who have to join the ranks again by law, if the emperor demands it. And yes, Titus, of course he does demand it. We've just lost a field army, don't you read the news? Most will join, of course, but they are basically retired veterans, so not the most fresh and youngest troops you could expect. Then he can recruit barbarians, but in the Balkans, these barbarians will most likely be Goths. And well, politically speaking, this will be a little odd. It is one thing to expect Sarmatians to be loyal to Rome against Alemanni, or Franks against Suevis, but hurling Goths against Goths, in this particular context, does raise legitimate loyalty questions. And at last you've got the draft. Theodosius can draft citizens in the army, providing they do not cut their thumbs or abscond to a rich landowner farm where they will be hidden by the patrician in exchange for loyal and servile labor. The very same patrician could also welcome deserters from the army. And we can tell this was common practice because of all the imperial decrees enacted over and over again by the emperors, threatening the landowners with severe punishments in case of infraction. But this was to no avail. They wanted able and young men to work the fields. The patricians, based on their tax evaluation, were also supposed to supply a certain amount of main to the army. But very often they would lie and hide the strongest and youngest while offering only the lazy, the weak and the old. 
It was in the rich interest to supply the army with able men. But this was a long-term interest, not a short one. And the appeal of the short one was the strongest. It's a little bit like what happens nowadays with politicians and companies that accept and promote low wages for workers. It should be in their self-interest to offer decent wages for the workers so they might then support consumption. But hey, if I can save cost and let someone else make sure they have enough money to consume, all the better for me, right? The same applies with climate change and environmental policies. Yeah, yeah, I want to save my planet and breathe clean air and drink pure water. But I'm not losing one point of growth over that? Are you mad? Do you know how much money we're talking about? Recruitment is indeed a real pain for Theodosius. And you can tell because several elements show how desperate he is and how much he is actually scrapping the barrel. For instance, we have just seen that some men went as far as cutting their own thumbs to avoid conscription. Well, this time it doesn't matter. You are still coming. The emperor establishes a ratio to make sure he doesn't only get main men, something of the order of two men per community recruitment, but he does draft them. They can still convey orders, carry supply, be used as a stool or whatever. Certain pieces of legislation also highlight that Theodosius is not kidding around. He wants those men, and will get rid of anyone standing in his way to re-establish a field army. Most of these draftees were reluctant to serve, so desertion was a real issue, which had often benefited patricians on the lookout for new hands. Well, this time, landowners or overseers who harbored deserters will be burnt alive. If Theodosius was not such a devotee Christian, and if times were different, they would have been probably crucified. I mean, he could just hang them or cut their heads off, but no, 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 no. Your crime is so horrendous that even you, a rich, well-connected, high-ranking aristocrat, will die by fire if you dare to stand in the way of my military policy. I want you to think really hard when a deserter will show up at your doorstep and anticipate the pain of your burning flesh. And just to make sure you cannot weasel your way out, your slaves, you know those people who hate your guts and dream of nothing else but freedom? Well, if any slave informs on a deserter, he will gain his freedom. So good luck now to keep this a secret. He also recruits Gothic prisoners or deserters. And it is one thing to hire barbarians to fill up the gaps, but it is an entirely different proposition to use men from the very enemy you are fighting. You don't hear about the American army using Germans or Japanese as war recruits during World War II in the middle of a battle. And I'm not talking about Japanese-Americans or German-Americans serving in the military. I am talking about German Wehrmacht soldiers taken prisoners by the US Army and then sent back to the front to fight against their former brothers-in-arms. The Germans did so at Stalingrad, for instance, using former Russian soldiers to fight against the Soviets. But at any rate, this is a show of weakness. The Americans did not resort to this because they had so much manpower that there was no need for such a desperate measure. Well, Theodosius does resort to drafting the very enemy he is fighting. It was common practice to enlist barbarians in the army and to even allow them to reach high-ranking positions. And for most of Roman history, barbarians in the Roman army were very loyal to Rome. Actually, usually, when we find high-ranking barbarian officers, the sources are often referring to the man's origin. But he might have not even ever been in Germany. 
we should rather see it as a rich dual identity, just like Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, or Mexican Americans. Yes, this person's parents came from Mexico, and he therefore benefited from a Mexican culture and might speak the language. But he might have never been in Mexico his entire life, and he's mainly American. Well, then you also had Frankish Romans and Samarthian Romans, and so on and so on. They were living and having a career in a military structure which was fully Roman-made and based. But in 378 AD, the context is extraordinary. Either rationally, with very good reasons, or as a preventive overkill measure, right after the debacle at Adrianople, Julius, the commander-in-chief of the army in the Eastern Empire, invited Gothic settlers, men and women, who had lawfully lived in the empire well before the arrival of the Tervingi and Gretungi. Well, he invited them to different assemblies in several cities and had them massacred. So here, right now, there is very little trust towards Gothic people in general, even for those who have been living on Roman soil for years. So if in this context, you end up enlisting men who might have even fought against Valence at Adrianople, well, it does make you look desperate, doesn't it? Gratian also has to let him some of his men to contribute to the rebuilding of the field army. This might also be as a matter of urgency. He needs solid troops as soon as possible. But still, it's not like the Western Empire does not also need military men, whereas trouble is brewing on the Rhine. If Gratian could keep this man attached to him, he would. But speed is indeed of the essence. Most of the Eastern Field Army was destroyed on August the 9th, 378, in midsummer. And fall and winter came quickly afterwards. The Goths have already benefited from a free hand during all those months. Theodosius has to have something. Not necessarily a top-notch army, but at least numbers, and a decent cohesive force to reckon with by the spring of 379, in order to represent some kind of threat to the Germans. But despite all his best efforts, the picture does look grim for Theodosius' army. His veteran corps, those men who survived at Adrianople, have a low morale. They have been blatantly defeated by barbarians and lost both the emperor and their standards in the process. They have brought shame upon themselves. The other Romans are either old or green and overall quite reluctant to be here. At last, some of the recruited barbarians being Goths who knows what they could do in the heat of the battle? So he's got an army. But it's not Valens' army, and the trouble Theodosius went through to build it makes him realize a bitter truth. That's it. There will be no third chance. If you lose this army, it might take a decade or even more before we can produce another one without seriously undermining agricultural production and generating disastrous political and social upheavals. That's all he's got. And so, for quite a while, the emperor is going to play his hand well. He knows the Goths can be formidable foes when they muster their forces and present a united front. But food still remains an issue, and feeding so many people when you live off the land is no easy job. Frittinger and the other Gothic kings and leaders have to be on the move all the time and to scatter the troops to collect food. They are also stuck in the Balkans. The Romans are masters of the sea. The Germans can storm Constantinople and force the Bosphorus. 
and they are still not yet able to go beyond the western passes and invade Italy. So the theatre of operation is limited to a geographical area, which is pretty mountainous, with just a few main roads. The Goths can be ambushed, manoeuvred, and pushed to starvation to make them suffer from attrition. Their foraging parties can be picked up one by one, offering very favourable odds to the Romans, when they engage them with overwhelming forces. Theodosius also exploits whatever split appears among the Gothic leaders. To sum it up, he exploits the late empire military doctrine to the fullest. Do not engage the field army if you can avoid it. Maneuver and exhaust them until they are cornered in a desperate position, where surrendering or being massacred are the only remaining options. So this is the plan that he follows for the whole year of 379. And under these circumstances, this cautious, pragmatic strategy is sound. And it produces some results. For one thing, the Gretungi and Tervingi eventually end up going their separate ways in 380, probably due to the food supply issue generated by the concentration of so many people. And the Gretungi are defeated by Gratian in an attempt to reach the Western Empire through the Western Passes. So one group down. Good job, guys. But the Tervingi are not defeated. They still manage to resist, and at one point, Theodosius comes to the conclusion that at least for the time being, he just can't get rid of them. He can't finish them off easily. And what it would take to crush them is just far, far too risky for the Empire. Three events will lead him to this painful realization. The first event was a near-death experience. Theodosius becomes very ill during the winter of 379 to 380, and is so close to death in February 380 that he gets baptized. Christian Roman emperors used to get baptism when they were about to die, to purge them of all their sins and be sure to arrive sinless in front of God. So he comes very close to joining his maker in the early 380. Beyond the fact that this kind of experience may have had a certain psychological impact on the man in regards to his life or his obligation towards God, this must have also raised a few more worldly questions. What would happen to the empire if I died? How would the succession go? He already has a three years old son, Flavius Arcadius. Would the men from his faction support his son in a bid for the throne? Would Gratian refuse to have an Eastern Empire at war, ruled by a baby, and march on Constantinople to establish his own candidate? Even if everybody within the Theodosian's faction was wise enough not to proclaim Arcadius as Eastern Emperor, would Gratian's new choice be accepted as well as it had been when Theodosius had been picked up in 378? Could the Empire really afford a civil war, whereas the Goths were still rampaging and had an army to reckon with? Could the Western Empire survive a few more months without a ruler? And would the next Emperor be as wise and cautious as he had been with the Eastern Field Army of the Balkans? His illness probably reminds him that he could die at any time, and that his death would more or less generate instability at a time when the Empire needed everything but division and instability. It is not as if succession had not been the main political problem and cause of civil war for the past 400 years. The Gothic issue needs a speedy conclusion, because in order to face it and handle it properly, it requires stability which was far from being easy to guarantee in the Roman world. The second event which cast doubt in Theodosius' mind as to the feasibility of crushing the Goths 
is simply another military defeat on the battlefield in the summer of 380. The information regarding this battle is sketchy, but we know that if it's not another bloody disaster, as Adrianople was, the defeat is serious enough that Theodosius has to leave the army in the hands of Croatian's generals, while he hurries back to Constantinople to secure his hold on power. After three years of ongoing warfare, the Goths have won two victories, one major decisive victory, and suffered only a single-bodied role. And this last Roman defeat happens despite the fact that the Gretungi no longer fight along the Tervingi. So how many battles would it take to eventually overturn the course of the conflict? And how many more precious legionaries will have to die in order to achieve the subjugation of these barbarians? Plus, in the meantime, the Balkans will keep on suffering endemic destruction and insecurity. At last, Theodosius probably makes up his mind after dealing with the third event. After his defeat against the Germans in 380, the following year, in 381, the Danube frontier comes under attack by a predominantly Hunnic force. The Romans manage to resist and repulse the aggression, but it is a fair warning. Constantinople has been at war with the Goths for four years now, and they are far from being defeated. What is going to happen if the diminished Eastern Phil army no longer has to deal with one large barbarian army on Roman soil, but with two? What if next time the Huns launch a large invasion and crush the Danube in mass? These beasts are the first that the Goths were fleeing from. If the Romans have not been able to crush the Germans after four years of warfare, can they really expect to fare better against both Goths and Huns? I mean, you're not even able to beat the minion, but you hope to kill both the minion and the boss? Well, good luck with that. So Theodosius realizes he has to come to some understanding with the Goths. The usual receptual policy of the empire, which has always implied a surrender on the part of barbarians overcome by Roman supremacy, is no longer a sustainable policy in the situation at hand. There is just too much at risk. When your survival is not at stake, how much are you willing to lose just to make a point? It is actually really hard to win at all costs when you can still retire safely. Take the British after the fall of France and Churchill dug a resistance to Nazi Germany. The famous and glorious, we will fight on the beaches, we will fight in the streets and in the hills, we will never surrender. How long do you think Winston would have been able to hold this line if the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force in France, had been destroyed at Dunkirk? Or if Nazi Germany had won the Battle of Britain? by keeping on bombing airfields. You no longer have a field army. You no longer have air cover. The French are out. The Soviets have an non-aggression treaty with the Germans and supply them with natural resources. You are on the brink of financial collapse and no one in the US of A wants to get involved in the war. How long can you politically support a war at all costs if Germany offers reasonable peace terms? Such as, you just get out of the war. You keep what you've got, you retain your colonial empire, maybe we'll just take Gibraltar because we can, and we could use it to squeeze you if you fell to another treaty. You accept the new political order in Europe, which at any rate, you can't do a thing about. It's just a matter of fact, your land force and air force have been destroyed. So now it's either a peace with an unscathed British empire, or total destruction that you no longer have the material means to prevent anyway. What do you say? There is no way Churchill would have been able to remain Prime Minister and maintain his resistance policy in this scenario. 
It's already kind of a miracle he was able to defend it even with the success at Dunkirk. You only fight to the bitter end if you have the means, and above all when you have no alternative. Look at the Germans in 1918. The territory is not occupied, they still have an army, but it's game over. Their allies are falling down one by one, their army is retreating and no longer has offensive capacities, their economy is on the fumes, and strikes and communist insurrections are taking place in their homeland. But peace with the Allies, even on harsh terms, and they will be harsh, will not entail the destruction of Germany. But in 1945, things are quite different. Not only does the Nazi regime know that defeat will cause its destruction, not only did the Allies demand unconditional surrender, but the Soviets invading. And as a German, you can legitimately expect that a lot of payback is in the offing. So they keep on fighting, especially in the East, until the bitter end, because the alternative is too damn frightening. In 382, though, the Roman Empire's survival is not at stake. The Goths might be undefeated, but they did not win. They cannot conquer the empire. They cannot even conquer a part of the empire. They can barely feed themselves and have to rampage all around the Balkans to leave out the land. They have managed to survive, and under the circumstances they were facing, that's quite an extraordinary achievement. But they do not constitute such a threat that a peace with them would amount to signing the execution warrant of the empire. The frightening proposition would be to keep on waging a war that repeatedly proved unwinnable over the last five years of conflict, while other threats are looming on the horizon. What would you rather negotiate? An agreement as equals, with undefeated but stressed, chaste, food-obsessed in secret gulfs? Or a peace treaty with them while the Danube frontier is breached yet again by another barbarian invasion, and the Roman civil war breaks out because someone in the army thinks another war leader could do a better job? So Theodosius resigned himself to strike a deal, more or less between equals, thus breaking away with the centuries-old Roman practice. The Goths do not surrender their weapons. They are not scattered across the empire as unfree farm laborers. They are not thrown in Roman theaters to be massacred for the entertainment of the Roman crowds. They are not sold in slavery. That's what their streak of victories allowed them to avoid. But what do they actually get? They get peace, so they are no longer fighting for their survival. And they also get lands, not an official kingdom within the empire, as they had hoped for a time but lands that they can safely and peacefully cultivate to extract food. So they secured a peaceful settlement within a much richer part of the world than where they used to live. They also retain their political, cultural, and military independence. They stay together. They are not a kingdom officially, more like allies, but for all intents and purposes, they do constitute an alien body, a sanctioned alien presence within the empire. And what do the Romans get in return? Well, first they also get peace. The Pax Romana is restored. The Empire's survival was never at stake, of course. But this successful invasion, successful for the Germans, of course, well, it generated a lot of instability and insecurity both for the Balkans and for the Roman frontier. They no longer need to have a field army chasing after an army of barbarians. The Comitatenses become available again to counter any new invasion. Then they also get a military alliance. Not only some of the Tervingi men will be drafted in the Roman army, but the Tervingi people's army might be called upon by the emperor 
to fight along the Roman army. Not as part of the Roman army, not under the command of Roman officers, but under the orders of the Ungothic kings and commanders. So it's an alliance. It bolsters the Roman military capacity in the Balkans. But it is also a clear breach of state sovereignty, and not just for the Roman Empire of 382 AD, but even for nowadays. No state worthy of the name would ever accept, if it could do otherwise, to have a foreign enemy army established permanently on its soil, even under the pretext of a military alliance, especially after having suffered so many defeats and damage. I mean, can you imagine Russia granting part of Karelia or Smolensk to any invader, allowing them to keep their army active after having lost their commander-in-chief and almost half of their military offensive capacity? There is no way a sovereign state worthy of the name could ever accept these kind of terms. But after five years of war, the Romans had been forced to. As a token of his diminished supremacy, the emperor also refuses to recognize any overall leader for the Goths and might have even demanded the execution of Frittingern. We don't know for sure because the German king might have been killed during the war. But that's it. Beyond immediate peace and sowing the seeds of division by leaving the possibility for the Romans to play one leader against another, all the Romans get is a shaky military alliance which could turn against them at any moment if the time is right for the Goths. And so, we can genuinely wonder, can't they see that this conflict and its conclusion are decisive? Can't Theodosius realize that it marks a dangerous turning point in Roman history and that he is creating a dangerous precedent? You could argue that insight helps us to reach this conclusion, that we know how the events will unfold and that the emperor does not. But hell, there are some universal truths out there, regardless of the time period and of the culture, and along with an occupying young man means trouble, no one likes to be oppressed, populations need food, you also have the no state should tolerate an organized military armed force on its soil which is not under its control. But to be honest, Theodosius knows this is a most unusual settlement. He knows this is a crucial and decisive event, and its imperial propaganda hints at it. He tries to sell it as an opportunity to gain manpower to work the fields, rather than to have these very fields strewn with corpses. But the official message also indicates that he hopes in time, or with time, to have this Gothic nation dissolved within the population of the empire. So the emperor is not naive. He does realize that this kist, this tumor, cannot remain and must sooner or later be dealt with. But the current circumstances are such that he cannot operate right now. After all, on paper, his plan is actually pretty good. The empire needs some breathing space to recover, and there is no way the Goths might be able to conquer it. The longer the emperor remains stable and at peace, the sooner it will restore a fully functional field army and be able to force a complete surrender on the Goths. He just needs a little more time. You could almost argue that this situation does not constitute a turning point, that this war was not decisive. What is the end result? The empire is still rich and intact? The division of power between East and West is stable and his relationship with Croatian is excellent? Only a tiny fraction of territory in the Balkans was granted to the Goths, and on a temporary basis, until Roman's arms can amend the treaty. So even when an event proves to be decisive, just like with the French in 1940, to some extent, 
it depends on what you focus your attention on. And what we should concentrate on is actually the possible fallout of the event. Okay, so now we are at peace with the Goths, and they are our allies, and will join our army in a fight to repulse other invaders. But what is going to happen if these new invaders are Goths? What is going to happen if following a Roman setback, they switch side and join the invaders? What if a Roman civil war breaks out and the usurper is favored by the Tervingi? What if they refuse to fight for either side and just wait for a bloody battle between Romans and just crush the survivors? So it's not necessarily the event itself, its unfolding or its direct result, but rather its possible mid- and long-term consequences which qualify it as decisive. When at one point a country or civilization will no longer be able to handle a situation to an extent that from then and onwards, things will necessarily go from bad to worse without any possible recourse. When as a consequence of this decisive event, this country or civilization might be less and less in control and will be put more and more in a situation of suffering and enduring adverse circumstances. And often, even knowing how crucial an event or a situation is, well, often knowing is not enough. Look at climate change and all the environmental challenges we're facing due to our economic system. The Club of Rome published the first real warning about this global and vital issue in 1972, nearly 50 years ago, half a century, and almost nothing has been done ever since. And that's because basically people in charge of facing a momentous event will play with the hand they were dealt with. And yeah, I hear you already. Especially in the case of climate change. Humanity was dealt a great hand. Most of the tools to put an end to climate change and environmental destruction were in our hands. All those problems are man-made, and it was just up to us to take the necessary measures to act decisively. But was it really? I mean, if you really take a hard look at it, was it really possible for the political and economical elite to act soundly about this question over the last 50 years? China was mostly swamped with overcoming the Cultural Revolution and then developing into a rich country to take hundreds of millions of its people out of poverty. The West and Russia were focused on the Cold War until the early 90s and on finding a new economic boom after the end of the post-World War II period of economic prosperity. Just think about the leaders in charge in the 70s, 80s and 90s and of when they were born. Brezhnev was born in 1906, Nixon in 1913, Helmut Schmidt in 1918, Gorbachev in 1931, Mitterrand in 1916, Reagan in 1911, Thatcher in 1925, Chirac in 1932. Evelyn Clinton, who was relatively young when he was elected president, was born in 1946, right after World War II. I mean, can we really reasonably expect those guys, some of whom were born prior to World War I, and were therefore raised and educated by late 19th century people, can we really expect those guys to pay attention, let alone seriously consider and suddenly act upon environmental warnings? Their brains were not conditioned for that. They were not used to focus particularly on environmental issues. They were not molded for this rising crisis. Their concern was about nuclear war, economic growth, winning elections, keeping the unemployment low, securing natural resources, stop or prevent revolutions, extend communism or capitalism, and so on and so on. 
they had late 19th century to mid 20th century minds, so they thought and saw the world in late 19th century to mid 20th century terms. And I'm not trying to find them or us excuses. This is just a matter of fact. You cannot understand, let alone speak a language which you have never been exposed to and which has always been irrelevant to your life. But let's assume one of those leaders, like an American president, let's say he does manage to pay attention to those early warnings about climate change and the environment, that he sets aside the politics, the Cold War, the Vietnam War, the economic challenges, the nuclear deterrence, his future elections, and takes some time to study really hard this new rising issue. Can he realistically revamp the whole economic system, which is already turning global? Can he politically and culturally, let alone legally, put an end to infinite growth and the ever-increasing consumption and waste of natural resources? Pretend he is willing to cross that bridge. Who is going to follow him? Who among the elite is not going to stop him from even trying to? Those leaders were trapped. Trapped by the historical and cultural mind-molding, trapped by the inherent weight of a centuries-old economic system and unable to overcome the resistance that real, painful changes would generate. And it was true of leaders of the late 20th century, and it remains mostly true for leaders in 2021. Joe Biden is 70 years old, for God's sake. He was born less than a year after Pearl Harbor. He was turning 20 when the Cuban Missile Crisis arose. The only difference nowadays is that politicians and companies have to talk about the environment. They must at least pretend they care. But that does not go much beyond. Well, to some extent, Theodosius was as trapped as these men. The Gothic issue is just a temporary setback. There is no way it can constitute a serious mid- and long-term threat to the existence of the empire. After all, they are just German barbarians. They are not Sassanids. They can't even take a single Roman city. And it's not his fault if he inherited an empire which cannot afford more men in its army in which almost no one wants to serve. And despite all the critics he has to suffer, it is not the first time that Roman supremacy is challenged on its own territory. What about the Second Punic War and Hannibal invasion of Italy? Granted, they were not barbarians. Then what about the abandonment of Dacia, modern-day Romania, in the 3rd century? The Romans decided to leave the land for it was too costly to protect, and under the direct pressure of barbarians. What about all the other territories which were invaded in the 3rd centuries, in Gaul, in Italy, in the East, because of the 3rd century crisis? I know, I know. I am circling around digressing with this conclusion. So here may be the first lessons we can draw from the fall of the Roman Empire. Firstly, trapped in our own matrix, in our own historical period, it is very hard for us to realize that we are approaching a turning point that our fall is nigh, that we are living in a crucial and decisive time. It is just too tempting to label this event as just another incident, as business as usual. Secondly, if we want to be able to assess if such a moment has come, to determine if those events are indeed decisive and can precipitate our fall, we must not focus on what's still here, on what still belongs to business as usual, but rather on the mid- and long-term possible outcomes. Yes, France still retains its colonial empire. Yes, it's not the first time it is occupied by the Germans. Yes, the Soviet Union is also a threat. But what is going to happen if Hitler does not want to withdraw his army? Can you really trust a man like Hitler? And thirdly, 
When such an event occurs, when you live through a decisive historical turning point, it is most likely the manifestation of a deeper-rooted issue. It's often too late to reverse the course of history, and the best you can do is damage control. The only immediate counterexample which comes to mind of societies facing a major existential crisis and which still somehow managed to overcome it are Meiji Japan, after the American Commodore Perry's expedition in the middle of the 19th century, and the Roman Empire of the 3rd century AD. And when you look at both those successful extraordinary recoveries, you can barely believe it. It just commands your admiration. But it seems to me those examples are really the exception rather than the rule. Most of the time, when you are taking the curve, you're already doomed. There is a 1995 French movie, Lion, by Mathieu Kassovitz. The hatred in English, I think. Very famous in France. And it illustrates this lesson perfectly. There is an anecdote, a little story, which is narrated several times in the film. It concludes the movie and it goes like this. Quote, It's the story of a man who's falling. He is falling from a 50 stories building. And in the course of his fall, to be reassured, the guy keeps on repeating to himself, So far, so good. So far, so good. So far, so good. But it's not the fall that matters. It's the landing. End quote. End of episode one of From's Widow Shield. Jeffrey's out. Hi there, Jeffrey once again. Just a few more things before I really conclude this episode. First of all, I want to make it clear that I am not a professional. I am not a teacher or a professor. I do not have any degree in history. And this is the work of an amateur, a diligent amateur. And I put a lot of effort in my research, but an amateur nonetheless. I am bound to make mistakes, so you can and you should definitely question my work, my interpretations, and even what I may present as facts. Do not believe blindly in everything I say as if this was the gospel. I am above all a telltaler, trying to walk in the footsteps of Dan Carling, so I want to turn history into a compelling story and use it to question our present, or human beings and their societies. But that does not make me a professional historian, far from it, no matter how many books I read. Then I would like to thank you for listening through. If you are still there, I assume you have been listening to me for almost four hours, so thank you for your time and for tolerating my accent and the way I sometimes stress words in English. Obviously, the audio quality level does not meet my expectations, but I have been editing this show over and over again. It's time to accept this first episode will never be perfect and that only practice will make it so. This saga is supposed to provide some answers or an explanation regarding the fall of the Roman Empire. But so far I have merely set the stage for the tragedy. Those answers to the interpretation of this fall will come in episode 2. If you can't wait, however, because this show raises your interest in this question, well, I strongly recommend you read Peter Zether's books, The Fall of the Roman Empire and Empires and Barbarians, among others. I really enjoyed reading him. 
By the way, at the end of episode two, I intend to share with you a list of most of the interesting books I've read to produce those episodes. Those worth my time, at least. Because this is something I really find frustrating in most of the show I follow, the lack of a book list. At last, I have a few persons I would like to thank. I know my work is far from being perfect or even match the quality, but I would have probably never found the interest in producing it if I had never listened to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, The Old Scoopers, The Martin Made Podcast, and of course Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and Revolutions Podcasts. If by any chance you have ended up on my show without having ever heard about theirs, and that you found some interest in my work, you must definitely listen to those guys. It's not even a question of a different league. These podcasters just play a different game. Mike Duncan's productions are certainly more academic in tone and content. Dewell Cooper's work is really rich and tries to always convey each protagonist's own point of view, rich in content. And Dan Carlin's is just a master of narration. So go for what you favor the most. And by the way, Mike, if you are listening to this, apologies if any of my jokes was actually stolen from one of your episodes. This was fully unintentional, and I have probably listened to your episodes way too much. And now to conclude for real, I would also like to thank the artist Kai Engel, whose music, which I believe to be free of rights, well, whose music I have used to introduce and conclude this show. The music introducing the show is titled Snowman, and the one soon to follow is titled Nothing. And both of them were composed by Kai Engel, and I believe we can all agree that they're pretty awesome. That's all for now. Wish you all the best.